persistent imagination, centered in the feeling of the wish fulfilled, is the secret of all successful operations. This alone is the means of fulfilling the intention. Every stage of man's progress is made by the conscious, voluntary exercise of the imagination. Hello friends, before we begin today's lecture, I want to let you know about my Unlock God Mode experience and the special May 2024 cohort that we're going to be doing this upcoming month. Unlock God Mode is a unique 10-hour audio course that invites you on a powerful journey of awareness, intention, consciousness, and manifestation. Inside the course, you'll be taught powerful tools and manifestation frameworks to help you unlock the next level of your reality, up-level your creation skills, deepen your relationship with yourself, and develop a limitless mind, and also tap into absolute faith and trust in the divine. We are about to begin the May 2024 Unlock God Mode cohort, so for anyone who joins Unlock God Mode this week, you will be added to the May 2024 group coaching calls. These are bonus weekly group calls with me and other members of the group, and I'll only be doing them this May. Also, as a bonus, for those that join this week, you'll receive a one-on-one personal coaching call with me to help you with any challenges or goals that you have. So head over to unlockgodmode.xyz or use the link in the show notes to lock in your spot in the Unlock God Mode experience. For those that join, this will be an extraordinary life-changing, transformative experience for you, and I'm so excited to have you in the group. I hope to see you inside the course, and now, enjoy this episode. I employed this technique back in 2019. Within two years, I had about $1.7 million, which is as crazy to me as it is to anyone listening who has not experienced that level of wealth. I now recognize that the reason I made that much money was to precisely show me that that ain't it. That's really not what it's about. It is not about having that much money. If you're taking things very seriously, if life ceases to be a game, if your reality ceases to be a game that you're playing, your confidence is likely to be affected. There's no reason to take money and abundance any more seriously than anything else in your life. We do it because we live in a culture that this is the way that things are measured right now. What you realize when you have a lot of money, you may get some temporary lift of feeling like you're a baller and like you're living the high life, but it's very short-lived. It is not as satisfying as you would imagine it to be. And it can really fuck with your focus. Your imagination is God. That sense of I am, that consciousness that you have had with you since you can remember having it, um, is quite literally an aspect of the divine. Your, Your consciousness, your state of mind, what you're bringing to experiences, how you feel, will carry over necessarily into the next perceived moment of time. So cultivating a state of mind that is balanced and free and loving is going to necessarily impact every aspect of your life. Hello and welcome to the James Zander Trip, where we dive into psychedelics, spirituality, the power of the mind, the mysteries of reality, and how we can tune into the highest timeline for ourselves. In today's episode, we're going to explore manifestation, reality creation, 
Neville Goddard, The Fabric of Space and Time, and The True Nature of Reality. Join me today as a magician of the mind, consciousness explorer, badass manifester, and the host of the Synchronicity Podcast. Noah Lampert, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, man. Thank you, man, so much for coming on. I've been hugely inspired by your podcast and all the work you're doing around Neville. Um, it's been such a blessing to find your work. Well, I'm glad to hear that. I want to start with your spiritual journey and particularly the beginning of your spiritual journey. Was there a specific moment that you can recall where you felt like there was more to reality than meets the eye? When I was probably around seven or eight, I was taking the bus to school. And I remember when I came home from school, it must have been in the first few days that I started doing that. I got off the bus and I started thinking about how everyone on the bus was going to have like a different experience for their day. Like they had a whole different experience where I get off the bus is where my consciousness leaves. I, I wasn't thinking consciousness. I was just thinking it through perspective and experience. And I remember that being like an early kind of like, this probably is something a little different than just my personal experience. There's like this bigger kind of uh, frame of existence that's going on. And another time was, I remember being in my backyard and kind of shifting the way the yard felt and seemed like I could in my head make it seem like a different place. Like it was the same place, but the perspective was shift. And that always kind of tripped me out. And then I'd say the big one is my first year at college um, or no, it wasn't college. I was at the, the five week program at Berkeley College of Music, my eventual alma mater. Um, and I took acid for the first time and I took, I took three tabs of this, uh, sunshine acid from San Francisco. I had, I had read a ton about acid. I had, uh, I, I was well versed in what I thought it would be like or what the effects were. Obviously it doesn't prepare you for when you're actually taking it. And, um, you know, that, that obviously blew my mind. I, I, I looked to that point as like, that's probably when I started pulling my head out of my ass like up until that point like I I really was in my own head almost all of the time like I was aware that there's some outside kind of relationship to my internal world and external world but I, I hadn't been shown just how kind of paramount that was so that was probably like the first real time where I was like okay this is something completely different than what I thought it was there's a broader spectrum of experience here and then subsequently after that you know I experienced a lot more with the psychedelic various psychedelics and that that continued to foster that impression mm. it's really cool because my first psychedelic experience was also LSD and I remember it vividly because I felt like it was the first time maybe outside of weed where I felt like my consciousness was shifted and I was still the same person, but I was looking at my life from a completely new perspective. And I found that so mind-blowing and so cool. And it led on this whole journey of exploration of mushrooms and uh, DMT and ayahuasca. And almost like, wow, we can just shift frequencies and we can shift the TV channel that we're looking at the same simulation, the same hologram, but interpreting completely different data. Totally. Totally. Your first LSD experience, what can you remember about it that, that blew your mind? It was really long. It was like 18 hours of like full-on tripping. I 
you know, I think I took one and then we we're like, oh, it's not working and took another and then took another all in the span of probably like 45 minutes. And, uh, you know, obviously it takes a little bit to kick in. And so it was a very powerful trip. Um, I remember a bunch of things. I remember, you know, there's at one point I was at a billiards table playing pool and like I couldn't not miss like and I was laughing in my head because I'm not like a great pool player. I can competently play, but I'm not like I'm not running the table and I was running the table and uh, I just remember it being like, oh, this is so simple. Like it's just angles. And like I was seeing things in such a clear and lucid way where uh, normally it didn't feel like that. Um, and it definitely shifted my perspective. You know, I remember like one of the scare tactics with propaganda with LSD, you know, back in the day, I'm sure still today, is that it, it's going to make you a different person. It's going to change who you are in like some negative sense. And it doesn't. Every experience, you know, is like a slight adjustment on your journey through, you know, 3D reality. But LSD probably just pings it a little bit different if you allow it to. I mean, you could fight the thing the whole way. Um, overall, it's a very pleasurable experience. I met my first girlfriend who happened to live 15 minutes away from where I lived because I was up in, we were both up in Boston. Like, um, and that was pretty cool. Um, and it was just, it was a crazy, overwhelming trip. I remember thinking it wouldn't end. And I called my dad and I was like, is, I don't, I think I'm like this forever. And like, he's like, you're not like, go drink some orange juice. Like it'll wear, you'll go to sleep and wake up. Cause I was like taking a shower and I was still tripping and I'm like, this is crazy. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, it was, you know, also at 15, I, I've thought about this more and more as I get older. I, I think it's okay to experiment with psychedelics when your mind is still developing, but there are probably some risks associated with that because you're really starting at that age to like figure out your identity and what LSD in particular, psilocybin, I would say do a particularly effective job at is obliterating your sense of identity, really kind of like showing you that what you conceive of yourself to be is just like an opinion or a thought. It's not this actual hardened thing. So that has some effects as you're growing up and developing what is you need an identity in a lot of ways. It gets a bad rap because it's not maybe real in the truest sense and people can over um, relate to it. But or over identify with it. But at the end of the day, you do want some semblance of an idea of who you are as you mature into, you know, the beginning stages of adulthood. And so when you're blasting psychedelics every day, not every day, but like, you know, every month, every few weeks, something like that, which I certainly was doing up until the age probably around like 20, 20 something, 23. Um, you're you're not really solidifying a sense of identity and you move in the world a little bit differently. And I think you know, the chances of psychosis, which I've spoken about a bunch on the podcast and kind of the relationship between synchronicities and psychedelics and psychosis, um, you know, you could you can push yourself towards that edge. I think there's a reason that when you look at a lot of the clinical data on mental illness or what's called mental illness, a lot of it shows up around the age of 18 or by the age of 18. And that makes sense to me, especially when you're kind of find yourself in a world seemingly with rules that you didn't implement um, or, or agree to implement in, in your mind, um, it can be a little bit tricky to navigate. Luckily, I've always been very blessed and had a lot of grace in the majority, if not all of my psychedelic experiences and how to process them afterwards. 
Um, you know, the number of bad trips I can probably count. I don't even need a hand to do it with like, you know, at least dozens and dozens of experience, if experiences, if not hundreds. And so, you know, I, I, it was a really like powerful kind of catalyst in my life to opening me up to other realms of existence and not just viewing them as like, oh, that's because I was on drugs or something. Like it felt like real meaningful content and experiences in terms of like how the world works and, you know, how you fit into this world. Yeah. Yeah, I can so relate to that. For me, it's been hugely influential in how I view the world. And it even ties into manifestation because on psychedelics, the inner landscape and the outer landscape kind of blur and you yeah. understand there is no distinction. Uh, it's all basically one big consciousness container where you're projecting your own thoughts and they and they reflect so quickly on psychedelics that when you start reading books about manifestation or reality creation, it's almost like, well, duh, <laughs> but exactly. But I, like I've experienced that. Exactly. Mm -hmm. exactly. Is there anything you could recommend to anyone who wants to dive into psychedelics and maybe they're maybe they're 20 years old and they don't know, should they venture there or not? How would you recommend to someone to take precautions to avoid any psychosis or any sort of complications? Well, I would say the most important thing, especially when you're starting out, is making sure what you're taking is actually what you're taking. This has become a larger issue as time has gone on um, because it's not like someone's going to be cutting your acid with fentanyl or anything. That's not what I'm saying. But like you don't, there's a lot of research chemicals out there these days that are LSD analogs that you may think you're getting, but are easier to synthesize than actual LSD. So with LSD, at least, you know, make sure it's from someone you trust. Make sure it's from someone who's, you know, hopefully used or tested the product um, or substance. That's probably the first rule, just because you don't, if you go and take a different chemical, which is fine, and it may have similar or very, very similar effects to LSD, it's not LSD. Um, and then the second thing would be your dosage. Try to get some reliable measure of what you're actually taking because those things will teach you like how much does what and you're not going to get like the same effect each time but like the difference between 350 micrograms of lsd and 100 micrograms of lsd is significant and that's a very different experience like the first time i was probably on 350 other times you know less than that i don't think many times i've ventured past that point um, because it's a very different experience and depending on what you're looking for or hoping to experience, um, you'd want to know the quality and the measurement of what you're doing. And then after that, it's really just like you, you will get very familiar very quickly when you do psychedelics to the, 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 you know, tried and true phrase set and setting, right? I mean, where you are, what you're doing, who you're with what your intentions are, those things will shape the experience more than anything else. You know, I, I marvel at people. And I listen, I used to go out, not like to party, but I'd like we'd venture outside of wherever we were doing sometimes taking psychedelics, you know, especially mushrooms, you know, in nature, it's quite pleasurable. Um, so it's not to say like stay in one spot, but where you feel secure and where you feel at home is very important. It will alter the trip significantly um so just be aware of those things it's not to say like don't go anywhere and don't experience things but like if you find yourself in like an unfamiliar place like a big concert or something like that 
yeah, you might freak out. Like that's overwhelming even when you're not on drugs. It's just like a really like it's a lot of people and a lot of like vibes and consciousness around you. So um, that those three things are probably the most important. And then just like, you know, try to figure what figure out what you're getting out of the experience. Like what what are you hoping to do there? It's not that you can always shape what the trip is going to be like, but you can look out for certain things and you can absolutely have an intention but also don't be too attached to the idea that you're going to get the experience you want. I would say, especially with psilocybin, um, that's one to look out for. They'll That'll show you some stuff and that'll get a little wonky on you um, uh, pretty often. Whereas um, LSD, you have a little more subjective, I think, control over, I would say. Like it is a little more you're using your thoughts to help create and generate the experience where psilocybin always felt like to me, just like this is some other consciousness. It is going to merge with yours and you're going to just have to be open to what is being shown to you. Um, and then the other one that I'm a big fan of is ketamine, which isn't technically a psychedelic. It's a dissociative, but it's great. I mean, it, it'll get you out of your head. I especially am becoming to re like uh, be a fan of it for people who are stuck or in like a stagnant state of consciousness or... Um, you know, just feeling maybe depressed or something, it's particularly useful because it pops you out of your current mindset. Like reliably, it will do that. And yes, things can get weird. They can get gnarly. It can be like a very odd experience that you maybe you don't even have like any useful kind of takeaways from, but it at least is popping you out of a sense of like, you know, your reality has to be this way or like, you know, you should feel this way. It'll it'll get you out of that pretty quickly and you don't need high doses of it. It's not like you have to go into a K-hole to get that benefit. So those three have probably been my um, my main go-tos over the years. Um, I microdose LSD regularly. I'll use ketamine, you know, semi-regularly. Mushrooms, I don't use that much. I, I usually have a lot of them, but I just don't tend to go there. Why is that? There's a few reasons. I mean, I have three kids. You know, I have an ex-wife and a wife. Like, I have a lot of responsibilities in my life where to be able to trip for four to six to eight hours, I have to really have that time and then hopefully a day of processing time the next day. And, you know, I luckily now have in my life some opportunities to to engage in those experiences. But typically... That's not something I'm I'm going to be able to do reliably. I have to make a plan to do psychedelics. Where in my younger years, you know, you don't have really any grand responsibilities. Maybe you have a job or some projects you're working on, but you can usually fit in these experiences with friends or by yourself if you're interested. Um, that does tend to change the more kind of responsibility and accountability. It's I mean I put it this way: if I wanted to, I can schedule that in, but to find the time to be able to do that uh, becomes more difficult, uh, you know, sometimes. I love what you you highlighted the difference between acid and shrooms that with, with LSD, it's like you're enhancing reality. I kind of see it as like you're turning up the dials of frequency on yeah. vibration, light and sound. Yeah. And then with mushrooms, it's like there is this extraterrestrial intelligence almost that, like you said, merges with you. And it's almost like the shrooms are using you to look through your eyes at yeah, the world. Totally. But it's a symbiotic relationship where you're also benefiting from that totally. by being able to look at the at your life through their eyes. And 
I, I personally prefer shrooms because I feel like I love connecting with that intelligence and I feel like it gives me so much. Whereas with acid, like you said, it's a bit more of a mental experience, not as much of a mystical experience for me anyway. I, I think for me, they, they're both profoundly mystical. I just feel like mushrooms, like they can just go wonky on you. I've never really had acid <laughs> go like super hard left turn for me like I even if it gets very weird and like oh my gosh my mind is being blown I kind of can follow the trajectory of how I got there mushrooms like it'll just be like nope like you're gonna get this experience now like think about this stuff and you're like oh okay I mean it's it, and it's no way bad I this I think I have an, an inner control freak with a lot of these things you know and and being able to let go and kind of surrender that at all times is probably something I could do a better job of. Um, and mushrooms tend to kind of get you to that place pretty quickly, um, you know. But I, I don't dislike them at all. I mean, I know people who really just don't like mushrooms, you know. They'll, they like a lot of other psychedelics, but they just don't like the vibe of mushrooms. But I, I'm, not, I'm not opposed to them. I'll probably have a mushroom experience in the next couple of weeks, to be honest. I've been thinking about it. Um, so, you know, we'll see. One of my one of my dreams is that uh, if we can get a billion people to take mushrooms or a plant medicine on the same day with intention, with love and with safety, can you imagine the frequency of the planet if you know, there was one in seven people sort of vibing on that level? I think about I thought about those things a lot more when I when I was younger, probably in my 20s, because you think about, right, like the power of mass consciousness, you think about the collective ability to create things, um, which is very interesting, and I think very true. As I get older, I realize like, and I think I had a tweet recently, I was like, you know, we should get all the world leaders to like, dose them with ketamine and see what happens. And well, it's like a funny thought for me. I, I know ultimately that's not really how things work in the world. So yes, if everyone was meditating, if everyone was on psychedelics, there would be a tonal shift in the frequency of the planet. But at the end of the day, I do believe it's everyone's individual perception of what reality is that shapes it, which is more powerful. Like, all I would say is like if a lot of people took psychedelics or a lot of people meditated or prayed or set a frequency, you would have more of an opportunity for people to shift their perspective and potentially see, you know, some more through more of the illusory aspects of reality. But it wouldn't like necessarily like be a turning point or a shifting point. You just provide more of an opportunity, which I think on the whole is a good thing. But ultimately, I think what shapes people's experience is their version of reality. You know, there could be someone who's never considered mushrooms before in their life. If everyone's on mushrooms and maybe there's a weird feeling in the air because of that, if they're just not on that frequency, it's going to be like missing a song on the radio because you're on a different channel. So I don't know, like mass consciousness is very interesting to me because there clearly is an effect. Like I'm a big sports fan. I can see even in sports how it has such a huge effect. If everyone believes this team is going to suck or everyone believes this team is doing well, that really has an impact. And of course, there are anomalies where no one believes in something and that team still does it because they're collective group team. And like there are clearly impacts for getting human beings together and having them co-believe in stuff like that is a, a phenomenon. But if you look at your personal experience, it's more based on what you individually believe. Like, do you believe that 
a team can come together and do something? Do you believe that like mass consciousness will create a big effect on reality? And so I think it's worth drilling down and looking at those types of questions because ultimately for me, like what I've come to, this is what I've come to believe. If you have any desire to shape and alter your reality, your experience, your external world, you should look at the tools and formulas and equations and ways to do that and find the ones that work best for you most reliably. Um, because otherwise, like, what are you doing? You're just acknowledging there's something that's going on and you're just going to be like a slave to whatever, you know, whims or fancies are going on in your mind or your heart that day. So that's where like I, I really come down. And I think, uh, you know, paradoxically in a lot of ways, as more people individually realize that they are in control or have the ability to control what they're generating and what reality is, that's when you see a lot more people coming together and having either psychedelic experiences or realizing that the illusory nature and dreamlike quality of this world, those things tend to have a powerful effect in terms of how we experience collectively reality like what what are the the memes and themes that we believe in collectively mm -hmm. yeah I, I think for me the potential of psychedelics that i saw in myself was that when you hear the message from your own subconscious or from that intelligence of the mushrooms it hits you different than reading about it in a book oh and yeah so i felt like you know if when a lot of people are doing psychedelics they're all connecting with their own subconscious. And so I feel like they are all hearing the message that they most need to hear and the frequency they most need to hear. But like you say, it's an individual process. Yeah, I, I just, I, I tend to think about these things because it's interesting, like what what is the effect of a lot of people doing something with the same intention at the same time? I mean, clearly that's been going on since the beginning of people doing that like that is the natural i think um it's why when people have like profound ayahuasca experience they they want to go tell all of their friends and people and annoy all of their friends with their ayahuasca experience and they think like oh no i have to share this so this person either does ayahuasca or they understand this is what's actually going on but at the end of the day most people when they hear it may be like, oh, that's kind of interesting, but it doesn't hit them the same way because it wasn't their experience. Um, and even if it moves them to go then take ayahuasca and they have an experience and they relay with the friend or person and saying, oh, yeah, you were right. It's like a different thing. It's like I look at it like the person who heard that from their friend, if that was the thing that leads them to do something, that's the experience they needed. They needed to hear it from someone to be able to be like, oh, that's something I should be in. That's how they got it into their field of awareness. Um, it just feels like a very personal and in like, I really do believe we are each experiencing our own version of external reality. So even though we can say, oh yeah, here's James, here's Noah, here's, you know, Biden, here's the United States, here's Russia, here's Ukraine. We can agree that these things objectively exist. We can go there, we can visit there, we can touch and feel these things, um, we're not seeing the same thing at all. It's very different and wildly different, even from people who you may think share very similar experiences. And I think that is being revealed more and more over the past few years specifically. I think COVID was a big, big, big catalyst for that. Um, not because people were locked down or restrict, uh, you know, movement was restricted, but because <clears throat> you would find people who seemingly like 
if you looked at statistics and data are very similar, like have similar interests, have been, you know, leaning politically the same direction, you know, socially, whatever it is. But then like you'd find someone who would be like for the vaccine and someone who's like, I don't know about that. Or you like Trump was another one like, oh, I hate Trump. Or it's like, oh, Trump's kind of funny. Like this isn't as big. And you would see these massive divides where you would have assumed naturally that people were seeing the world the same way. So while it's kind of jarring a lot of the times to have to go through that process and come to terms with that maybe your version of reality isn't the same as the person who's your friend or your family or someone you feel aligned with, um, it is helpful for recognizing that we're not experiencing the same place out there. The thoughts and feelings and you know ideas that are manifesting in my reality are not the same as even someone who you're in a, a relationship with, who's like living with you. Like it can be very, very different. And so that should show us that we probably are generating these realities for ourselves on some level. And then what are the tools? Like, how does that work? What can we do to alter and change and change kind of that if we desire to do that? If we're living our perfect life, you know, go for it, keep it up. But if you are striving for something, if you do have desires that aren't negative things like that, oh, some, some materialistic desire, whatever, who cares? Let your desires kind of show you what type of world you're experiencing because it, it ultimately feels to me like we're weaving our ways way like through a reality tunnel and we're stitching together all of these different frames, which we would say is our life or a day or a week or a year or whatever. And like, what, what do you want to use as your compass? What do you want your directing principle to be? For me, I, I know what that is. It's like, I know the feeling of joy, of ecstasy, of fulfillment, of, and I know that's not going to be my experience all of the time, but that's what's guiding me and altering my decisions. Um, if you give that up at any point and say, okay, well, I'm going to let external reality tell me what I should be weaving through, you're just kind of in for like, it's like a very unpredictable and you probably won't have a lot of understanding um, why things are happening, which can get, you know, not fun. So. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love which you mentioned about that because it, it truly is like there's 8 billion different realities going on at the same time. And then yeah. within each person's reality, you're moving through states continually. So each day is like its own life and its own state, if not every minute. Yeah. Yeah. And it reminds me of a Neville Goddard thing with states in general. Like he describes it, which I think is a wonderful analogy that like you move through the states the states, the spiritual states are there forever. Like these, these, the ecstasy, joy, like there are spiritual states that live there forever. We also create states, temporary states, but just because we don't experience those states anymore doesn't mean they don't exist. If you go to a city and you're no longer in the city, it doesn't mean the city doesn't exist. It's still there. You can pass through it at any point. Other people can pass through it. But you, as a consciousness, are constantly moving through various states. So how do you appropriate states? What do you do? That becomes, to me, the next logical question when we're dealing with that type of stuff. So, yes, let's dive into that because Neville is, has been such an important influence on my life. And um, you were one of the first people that really showed me how unique Neville was. I think it was the Imaginal Techniques episode. It also might have been the episode with you and Ramin Nazer, where you guys dove into that. And just hearing your stories about how you've used imagination 
and hearing you break it down really solidified for me that this is real, like this is real stuff. So I'm curious to ask you, like, when did you first discover Neville and who brought Neville to your attention? And was there like a synchronicity that led you to him? Yeah, I heard about Neville through, I think, Mitch Horowitz, who has a tattoo of him on his arm. He's Mitch is a really cool guy. Um, I think he mentioned him in passing. It wasn't like a big thing, but he was just saying, like, there's this guy. He believes your imagination is God. And something about that phrase, which I had thought about and experienced in my life, made a lot of sense. And I was like, oh, okay, I'm going to go to SoulSeek, an old ancient peer-to-peer file-sharing service and, and download everything I can find about Neville Goddard. And there was a treasure trove of talks in varying degrees of quality. And I just started listening to these talks when I was mowing the lawn, when I was jogging. And the more he said, the more I was like, not only did it make sense, these are thoughts that I have had. Like I remember there was a, a, a period of time I made the mistake at the time of going and telling everyone this where I was like, oh, I'm Jesus Christ. Like, I understand I'm Jesus Christ. I didn't think I'm Jesus Christ, like the guy you read about in books, but I just knew fully. This was mostly mushrooms and acid at the time where I was taking where I, where I was realizing this. I was like, I am Jesus Christ. And that's a really weird thought to be having. I, I'm by birth Jewish. I didn't I don't know anything about Jesus Christ, the man. At the time, I didn't read anything about it. I had no experience with the New Testament, um, you know, never celebrated Christmas. I don't know any of this stuff. So it was a weird feeling to have, but yet I knew that it was true. And one of the big things that Neville Goddard talks about, which I think is probably the most helpful for people who struggle with Christianity, who maybe grew up Christian and understand that just the way it's taught just seems wrong and then you kind of some people develop like an aversion to it easily which is a shame because there there is a coded language in this stuff it is not just there to control and be some horrible thing but he talks about how all of these characters in the bible really any religious text he doesn't say this but i extrapolate from that that any religious text are not people they're personifications of states of consciousness and each one represents a state of consciousness that we move through ultimately culminating with the realization that you and the Father are one. And when I say the Father, I mean what we conceive of of God, the one, the unified source of consciousness. And when we say Jesus Christ, it's the realization that, oh my God, that resides within me. And it resides within you as your, what he would say, your wonderful human imagination. And when those two things really sync up, and we, we get to stay there for a little bit. It reminds me of a Maharaji quote when he talks about acid in particular, um, Ram Dass's guru, he says, you know, LSD will give you the opportunity to go and be with Christ, but you have to come back. Um, real enlightenment or realization is that realization where it's locked in and you don't forget that. Um, and that has been my experience is like when you kind of get to the point where you're like, oh, my God, I am actually creating. I am god of this reality not in an egotistical way not like your god and no one else is but your god and so is everyone else but when you realize that it you know you can then experiment with different techniques that neville offers ones you come up with yourself whatever it will be to, to see if that's true that's also what really drew me to neville goddard he's not just making this statement and saying take my word for it which to me is always a red flag um 
always a red flag. If there's no empirical testing of this within your own laboratory of your mind or spirit, that's a red flag. And there's way too much of that generally just in new age mysticism and spiritualism. It's like, oh, I am the source of this wisdom, you know, pay me or come to me to get it. That never vibed with me. I'm always wary of that. I've been wary of guru worship, you know, throughout various points in my life. Um, so I like those two things. I like that there was something that I could directly relate to as a felt experience. And I could test and see if these techniques or if this was actually true, that my imagination is God. And, you know, I very early on employed these techniques very basic stuff. I mean, not not to say it wasn't important, but I had just had my second child and I needed money. And so I was like, all right, let me let me put this to the test with the money and see if I can get some income streams coming in that, you know, would would ease kind of this burden and pressure that is, you know, pretty hard or think, you know, you don't want to have no money with a new kid. Um, and I did it. I, I want to say within a month, like my I, I remember specifically, I, I had a YouTube channel. And it just started going from making like 20 bucks a day to $200 a day to like $400 a day to $500 a day. And I'm like, what the? F and there was no change. You could literally, was the, I, I had done digital analytics up until that point a lot. So I was familiar with what to look for, what to see trends, you know, where something came from. But it was just one day a straight shot up and it just kept going. And it was this hilarious graph where you could see and almost track to the day where I started employing these techniques and I was like, oh, shit, this is crazy. Like, this is, this is, I, I kind of thought this is how things worked, but I had never seen such direct evidence. And especially something for me at the time was a real difficult thing, like money and resources. I know a lot of people are familiar with that particular frequency of consciousness where it feels like you have lack or you don't have enough or it's a struggle to get to or you're living month to month. So to see that issue be alleviated in such a short period of time um, was eye-opening. And then I was just kind of like, oh, okay, like I, I get this. I, I like I fully understand that this is true. Um, and then, you know, many other things since then have, have proven it and solidified it. But even with all that, and I, I say this as a not a warning point or a caution point, but just to to maybe give people some comfort. It doesn't necessarily stay locked in forever. You do go through these periods of forgetfulness and wakefulness, and our life is one giant example of that. But it's very easy to forget that. It's very easy to get caught up in whatever narrative or story or situation or experience you find yourself in external reality. And just recognize you are doing this all the time. It's not like you choose to manifest at one point or another. You are constantly manifesting exactly what you believe. That is what this external world is. That is a direct reflection of what you ultimately believe. So if you're looking out there and it's something you don't like or it doesn't feel right to you or there's some issues there, recognize that's being generated by you. So it's your job to go figure out where is that coming from and how do you alter that truly. And you can't trick yourself. Can't like lie to yourself to believe something else. That's not how it works. So it does encourage this process of like inner investigation, which then helps reveal that you do have the power and the ability to change things. So these negative experiences that we see out there, and this took this was a process for me. This is like a two-year process after three years of discovering Neville Goddard. 
um, where things were very difficult. I would describe myself as depressed and not understanding things. And, and life just kind of got away from me. Like I was fumbling the ball, so to speak. And I started like, I was like, why did this happen? Like, I know all this stuff. I, I, I understand it. I can employ it. Why am I not doing it? Why? What's the wrong? What's the issue? And where did I fail? And that's obviously the wrong approach to look at these things from. What I realized is that you will get contrast experiences. You, If you only had a positive, enlightened, amazing view of reality, A, you probably wouldn't be here. That's not really what this place is. And B, how would you know what was good and what wasn't? That would just be an, a static state of kind of experience and you wouldn't know that it's even so great. It would just become passe after a certain period of time. So we do give ourselves these kind of challenges and what I would call threshold guardians at various times, some more difficult to overcome than others, um, where we get that contrast. We go, oh, I don't want this. I know I don't want this. So you can at least see like, oh, I do want that. I, do, I would like to move to that place. So if you can look at your problems and issues kind of as a as a contrast to what you would like to be experiencing, they have benefit. They have use. You don't have to chill there forever and kind of like stay stuck there, but you get to see that there is a functional aspect of that, much like fear-based, you know, thinking and that. There is a functional reason why we're afraid of things. It's not just because we're making a mistake or we're stupid or something. It's they're showing us something that ultimately it's like as illusory as anything else, but if you make it a big deal in your head, you perpetuate the situation and it gets a little more sticky to get out of. So uh, I've definitely um, been realizing that more and more, uh, I'd say it over the past like six months or so. Do you remember what was the scene or the technique you used when you were trying to manifest money and it, suddenly your YouTube income shut up? Yeah, I mean, I was doing it often and regularly. I think for that one, I was just remembering like ultimately the feeling of like, oh, it's fine. Like everything's fine. Like I, I have enough. And I remember at the time also not wanting to like get help from like any immediate source, like a family member. Like I didn't want like to be borrowing money from someone. I wanted it to be genuine income that was coming from my generation like i like my sources of revenue that was very important to me at that point too um and uh it just I, I think i don't remember what the exact scenes were i was probably doing a bunch of different ones um but just really tapping into that feeling of being like it's it's gonna work out like don't if, if so, even if your bank account is is showing you something that you don't really it doesn't validate that or you have debt or whatever um it's just, it's a transitory, illusory state. Like, you will be fine. Go look back at your life. You've always been fine, even when you thought you weren't. It has worked out. Um, even if things didn't go according to plan exactly the way you wanted, it does work out. And just relaxing into that and letting that kind of guide your decisions was the first kind of, like, real attempt I was using at that. And then, at the same time, because you don't have to limit it to one thing, I also just was like, you know, I I, I want to be healthier. I want to be, to me, I've realized, and this may not be the same for everyone, especially when it comes to health, because this has become a big part of my life, uh, you know, over the past year or so, is the, the for me, the relationship between your physical well-being and your spiritual well-being and your mental well-being, like, that's not a joke. And I don't mean you have to be you know, have abs to be physically well. Everyone has their own sense of when they are well, their energy levels, their 
ability to function, how they feel in their body, how they feel in clothes, whatever it is, know what that is, that line is for yourself. Don't let society or other people tell you there's a body standard that you need to adhere to. That's not what it's about. But you yourself know how you feel best. You know when you're doing well. Um, for me, I think I've baked that into my best manifestation states. So I've noticed that when I start exercising, when I start paying attention to the food I'm ingesting, when I'm more mindful of like my sleep patterns, that seems to make for me in my life the imaginal techniques and the manifestations and the realizations and the synchronicities increase quite a bit, right? And I've come to terms with that and kind of just accepted that, you know, my the, the best version of myself here probably has like a physical exercise routine, probably pays attention to the health of their body. And I don't think I fully grokked that this last time. Like I could see it happening and it made sense to me because I was like getting in really good shape and I was in really good shape when I was like really kicking ass. And um, it was just kind of like I noted that, but I didn't actually get that. For me, this is not necessarily for everyone. That's something that seems to be important. Like, I, and I think... There could be many reasons for that, you know, but ultimately like that there does seem to be a direct connection between your physical well-being and your ability to generate and manifest aspects of reality. And I think that's a good thing. It's it's good to be physically well. That's a really good point, because so often people think of manifestation as a mental thing. But when you include your physical well-being in it and you you say, well, my ideal version, the most successful version of myself, the happiest version of myself, would probably be kicking ass in terms of fitness. It permeates through your life, you know, and when you have a good workout or you have a good run, you can't not feel good after it. And I yeah. think that state also permeates into your uh, consciousness. Yeah, it's anti-Socratic because, you know, there is the school of thought that the body is just a vessel. It's just this you know, thing, we deal with it, but there's no real inherent substance to it because it's like, it's not like, it's it's not spirit. So it's not like the real thing. Now, sure, I, I agree with that, but like, you can't deny you are in physical reality. You do have some like limitations and, you know, considerations here. So I've just noticed that like, there is a direct connection there for me. That may not be for everyone is what I'm saying. Like there are people who may be like Socrates was clearly one of them. It just didn't have that much importance for them. They knew and they saw that their mind and their soul was the generative cause of these things. And the body was just a reflection of that. But for me, I know that I like to, f I find that if like, I don't have to be wasting thought space and energy space on like, oh, I don't feel well or like, oh, my energy levels aren't where I want them to be or oh, I'm too fat. Like that stuff just like takes up space and time. Like it is my tendency to tend to like run those things through my head when I'm experiencing them. So why not just not eliminate that by doing the things that kind of make you feel like, oh, I have plenty of energy or, you know, oh yeah, I have a cold, but it's not the worst thing in the world. And like there's there's just different ways of looking at it and fitness is one component of it like that that's that's what i mean for each person it's whatever you feel is important to you you could be morbidly obese and feel completely at home and wonderful in your body if that's really how you feel more power to you so it's not like a fitness standard or body type that's important um it's your personal feelings of like okay i feel good here I, this feels right to me and I know that to be true. That's what you're looking for. I think that's an important distinction 
Um, yeah, I think a lot of times that does have to do with like fitness level and physical health, like your ability to feel well um, probably is related to that, but it doesn't have to be is an important distinction. I think one lesson I learned from psychedelics is that nothing is compartmentalized. So like everything is connected to everything, which ties into like how fitness can so totally. easily influence manifestation. And another area where I think that's obvious is when people fall in love or they have that romance blossoming, everything in their life becomes better because yep. it's like that state of love permeates everything. So totally. looking at things holistically has really helped me and understanding that every single action I take, even if it seems unrelated to a particular goal, can in fact influence it because how you do one thing is how you do everything. That's true. Your your consciousness, your state of mind, what you're bringing to experiences, how you feel will carry over necessarily into the next perceived moment of time. So cultivating a state of mind that is balanced and free and loving is going to necessarily impact every aspect of your life. For those listening who might not be familiar with Neville, how would you describe his core philosophy as you see it? Um, core philosophy ultimately is that your imagination is God. That sense of I am, that consciousness that you have had with you since you can remember having it, um, is quite literally an aspect of the divine. Um, and when I say aspect, that's not meant to diminish or limit it in any way. It's just we also recognize we do live in a world of polarity and duality, and this isn't the oneness, right? Oneness doesn't have any actual awareness to it, right? It's just oneness. It's just emanating. It's just being. There's no reflective quality of it. As soon as that oneness fractures into multiple or infinite levels of awareness, that's when we start getting that relationship between, you know, the oneness and that which is the oneness but perceives itself to be some degree of separation from it, which is not actually, but that's the perception. So for Neville Goddard, his take, and I don't, there's been some things that Neville Goddard says that I think are more revelatory about who he was as a person and the time he grew up in and his personal um you know, proclivities that I might not necessarily like fully agree with. And I think that's also an important thing to recognize. He really only focused on the Bible when he spoke. He really only focused on using that as a reference guide for realization or awareness and consciousness, which I do believe it's a wonderful guide for that. And um, that's amazing. But you can use anything. Like I, I believe any religious or spiritual text, you know, from Hinduism to Buddhism to Native American, like it doesn't matter. Your personal mythology can have just as much meaning as the Bible. However, the Bible is a reliable source because Jesus Christ does have such a kind of impactful quality to it, even if you don't believe in anything about Jesus Christ. Even if you believe he was a man who lived in Galilee, who did all of these things, there is an effect of it. There is like that hits you. I, I disagree with that. That's stupid. Or yes, that's exactly what happened. That was a guy. There is some impact there. So I find it to be a useful kind of metaphor or analogy. Also, as I pointed out before, I had that personal experience of being like, oh, I'm Jesus Christ, which there is no rational reason that I should have felt like that. That wasn't like there, it's not like I wanted that. It's not like I felt like this was something. And in fact, I really had nothing to do with Jesus Christ before in any way relationally, but I was sure that that was the case. So in consciousness, in the field of consciousness that we share in external reality, um, there's a resonant quality to that. So for Neville, 
that Jesus Christ day, like I said, was the realization that you and your father are one. So you, your individual consciousness, your awareness comes to the realization that, oh, I'm the same as God. I am the same as the creative force and impetus for reality and awareness. And that's a very powerful state when you realize that because it puts a tremendous amount of um, responsibility and power uh, into your hands, but it can also be completely terrifying, right? And I think this is why a lot of people on psychedelics can kind of go a little bit crazy because it's it's a lot of responsibility. It's like you then can't blame anyone else or any external factor or any situation or any situations that have happened to you, um, including trauma, all of these things that are very impactful in our lives in a lot of ways, you begin that that erodes as like conditions for what your reality is like. Yes, that's your story. That's your what you went through. This is what you've experienced. But it's not um, the reason things are the way they are. It is not the sole cause. It is not even really any of the cause. It's your kind of awareness of that and how it's going to impact you that determines things in your life. So um that's what he was ultimately about. And then he went, you know, on a series of lectures throughout the, I think, from the 40s to the 60s, maybe even the early 70s. I forget exactly when he died, um, where he spoke about these things and gave various techniques um, on how to achieve proof of this. And, you know, went through a lot of stories of people who shared things with him. Um, he was very interested in dreams and you know analogies and and different dimensions of reality that he had experienced himself he had like three profound experiences that he went through that really kind of showed him um what was going on the first two-thirds of his career or life were more about what he would call the law which is the operative workings of this kind of Thing and like how to use it and how to implement it and then towards the end he started talking about the promise and he got a lot less popular when he started talking about the promise because it's really far out there shit and this is more about the like religiosity of like becoming enlightened and the at one minute and how yes you can use the law to achieve many you know materialistic or relationship or things in the world like you can do make it your paradise but to him, the real goal was kind of merging with this divine and kind of getting into that consciousness where you recognize that the illusory element of separateness between you and everything else is just as illusory as, you know, your feelings of limitation of not being able to get what you want or experience what you want. Um, and he viewed that as kind of like the ultimate desire. So, you know, to me, that was... Um, it lined up with kind of how I've felt in my life. And I'm not at the point where I'm just talking about the promise and it's time to like merge with the one there. I, I'm 40. There's still a lot of like in the world stuff that I desire and, you know, kind of am weaving through reality to experience. But I also recognize that that is kind of what we're all ultimately doing here. We are moving to the state of kind of at oneness, awareness and understanding that, um, as an in, uh, inevitable part of existence, which you don't have to dwell on. It's not like you have to like be looking in that direction to use any of these techniques. It can be for very simplistic but important stuff in your life. And I don't mean to diminish it at all.
But, you know, I think towards the end of people's lives, they start to think a little bit more about what comes next and, you know, mortality and death and where that all fits in. So I think that was natural, a natural progression for someone like him to kind of focus more on the mystical aspects of our consciousness and what this all means rather than just like, what can you get out of life? You know, what's it going to be for you? So do you find yourself resonating more with the promise sections the more that you live life or do you still find yourself resonating more with the law part of the yeah, i'd say it's like work? a it, it's probably like 70 30 law to the promise like the the promise is always there in my head because like once you kind of like open up to that like you recognize that's probably what this is that's probably what this ultimately is about but I think we are here as human beings for a reason. I don't think the whole reason of our life is to think about what happens after we live our lives. We're here. We're experiencing things. I think it's perfectly fine to have desires. They can be for things that maybe people are, you know, think are are, are stupid or not like, you know, materialism and uh, money and, you know, love and all these things can be looked down upon by like a, a spiritual aspirant because it's like, oh, well, these are just traps. You hear this a lot in Eastern philosophy. Um, and I just don't think that's true. I think you desire things for a specific reason. Sometimes you desire something to see that it's not what you wanted at all. And that's also valid. It doesn't mean that every achievement of your desire is going to come with this great sense of satisfaction and fulfillment. That's what we hope to be the case. And certainly that is um, something that happens often or some of the time. But it's not it's not like you should be like shying away from things that you feel like you want. Go for it. Employ the law. Employ the techniques to, um, you know, bring into your life and experience things in your life that you feel would be valuable and important for you. And whatever comes from that, just take it, you know, integrate it and understand that you will probably want something else right after that. These are not permanent states of realization. I don't think most people really desire or are here in this realm for that some are but that's like you probably aren't like is is the truth i would think most of the people who i reach aren't right like who i am coming across their fields of vision like and that's totally fine that's like a good thing that means you're doing something here you're you're working on something you're trying to realize something and it's through the world like it that's great that's probably why you're a human being there are plenty of other realms to go where you don't have to do it like that and you probably will experience those too but while you're here in this earth realm in this version of reality learn what the the tricks of the trade are learn how the 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 laws and principles of this world work and then play around with them as best you can, you know, like use what you can to um, take a more active role in what you're creating here rather than just reacting to the external reality. A lot of people's existence is like making a face in the mirror, like a weird, scary face and then getting freaked out by the face in the mirror and just doing that for a really long time. And you don't recognize like you're making the face. The mirror is just reflecting back to you what it is. So smile, love yourself, have a good time, and then watch reality reflect that back to you more than just being like, ah, everything's shitty. Like, oh, it's so scary out here. Things are getting worse. You know, everything is bad. Look at all the horrible things in the world. You're telling yourself that story in a mirror, and then the mirror is reflecting it back. And far too many people, including myself at various times, react to what the mirror is showing you, forgetting that you're the person kind of generating that thing that's being reflected back at you. Yeah. Yeah. It all starts with us and 
it's so easy to forget that when some hurricane comes into your life and like pulls at your attention. But uh, the key, I think, is to just keep stepping back in those times and centering yourself in something like God is imagination or imagination is God and centering yourself in a philosophy that can can guide you in those tough times. Totally. What do you think is one technique that people can start using to test Neville's philosophy? Yeah, I mean, I think Neville has a really good one. Um, I implemented one that I found is particularly useful. I think Neville's is um, the main one, which is you put yourself in a state akin to sleep, which is, you know, when you're going to sleep, you don't you don't have to be going to sleep, but you just put yourself in a restful kind of peaceful state. Like it, it, it's weird to think about, but you go to sleep every night by pretending you're going to go to sleep. That's what the process of sleep is. You go, all right, I'm going to do my best imitation of what sleep is. And that's all we're doing. We're just every night we're pretending to go to sleep and then we just go to sleep. That's what happens. I mean, sometimes you're so physically exhausted, you just pass out in a second, but there still has to be that awareness. Like I'm going to do the thing where I go to sleep now. That is always embedded. So all you do is you catch that That actually that is state. such a good point. It's crazy, right? It's so weird. No one realizes that like every night they're pretending to sleep before they sleep. That's what you're doing. You're just like, it's just like I'm going to do this thing now where I'm pretending to sleep. It's very, it's a weird trippy thing that you don't really think about until you catch yourself doing it. And it's hilarious. But all you do is you do that. You pretend to go to sleep. You don't actually have to go to sleep. You can do it multiple times throughout the day. But that's an important state to be in because it loosens the boundary or kind of blurs the boundary between that dreamlike state and your present consciousness that's aware i think it's probably like if we looked at it like in physiological terms it's moving from like alpha brain waves to like more of like the delta right you're get you're trying to put yourself into a restful state where it's more easy to kind of suggest and just be uh, impressionable by things then what you do is you have to have a goal before going into this or it just doesn't really seem to have the same efficacy. Like you don't let things come to you really in that moment. You can, but you should have a goal in mind of like something that you would necessarily like to experience a new job, a relationship, increased money. You know, I find it's particularly useful to rather than focus on just those ex- specific things go for meta states of consciousness so ecstasy joy fulfillment that's all it needs to be but we often relate those things to things in our life so it's okay to have that there too so let's say for instance you wanted a new job you lack some career direction but you don't know what it is you want to do even you don't like it you don't even know what job you want to move into you just know whatever you're doing now ain't cutting it or maybe you're unemployed or maybe it's just you know you you don't have anything really going at, at the time so what you would do is you would imagine some scenario with from within your own perspective. You're not watching a movie of yourself doing it. This is from your own perspective, your own two eyes, the same way you see and experience this world now. Um, from that perspective, you are going to create a scene that implies what you want, what you want to feel, the specific thing, in this case, a job that's fulfilling um, and brings you joy and you're excited about. You imagine a scenario and a scene that implies that has already happened. You're not getting the job. You're not will get the job. You're not doing the job. You are already have the job. You're already doing that. You already have that. And with that, and in as vivid as detail as you can, so the same way you could see this world, if you can bring it up and scale it up to that resolution, 
you you embed the feeling of that being true that the feeling of like oh this i'm doing it i did it this is it like this is the feeling of what it feels like that i had this thing that i wanted and it's completely aligned with all of my excitement and curiosity and all of those things and you really feel it and the second and the minute you feel that feeling and you're running through the scene you can do it as many times as you want you drop it and you let it go and you're done and that's it you can drift off to sleep you can get up if you were just laying down or sitting down and that's it and then you just pay attention to how you react towards things that would maybe imply whether you really felt like you had that job or not so if uh you know your your money's not there and you know you get hit with a bill or something and you know, you react like, oh, God, like, how am I going to pay this? This sucks. It's, you know, you probably didn't fully integrate that experience of having the job that is taking care of you or you feel good about it. So you can use those as like little litmus tests of little like barometers of of how that has sunk in. A lot of people don't let go of the seed, as Neville would refer to it as. They, they have this act. They have this desire, but they're just holding on to it. They're not letting it go. They're not letting it actually be true because they're perpetuating a state of consciousness that is at odds with that. They're letting their reality tell them that that isn't there yet, so it won't come. Um, and then everything, once you plan it, has its time of kind of realization, of awakening, of showing up in your life. So you have to be willing to accept some degree of patience, which is a very bad word for a lot of people who want instant manifestation on things, which is fine. That happens too. And that can happen, especially as you get more experience with this stuff being true and recognizing like once you catch that feeling or that mood, it's happening. Like, don't worry, it's happening. Um, and that works 100% of the time. We are doing that all of the time. Like that technique is just exercising. It's linking our what I would call our masculine and feminine minds together to create a child that is then birthed into this world. We're using the analytical, logical, directive quality of the masculine mind with the generative, intuitive, subconscious elements of the feminine mind. And when those two are in harmony and they're married together, that is what creates an experience or a realization or some situation or a relationship or whatever it is in our lives. So when you merge those and direct them with intention, that's when those things tend to happen. And then you can, you know, reflect on that and be like, oh my gosh, like this is a real thing that has happened and is a wonderful kind of miracle in a lot of ways. Whereas if this stuff just kind of flows into your life and you didn't have that awareness that you did it, it may go unnoticed or it may just be, oh, okay, well, of course that happened. The bridge of causality, it happened because A plus B equals C, rather than being like, no, it happened because this is like, there's this mystical component or energy of your awareness that can summon forth these things. Um, that's that's the reality of what's happening. So that's the, the primary Neville Goddard technique. I love what she mentioned about litmus tests. Like when things come up in your life that show you the opposite of what you intend, how you react to those things is a key factor of, of whether you have planted the seed or not. Totally. So I think with money, it's such a tricky one for people because let's say they feel the feeling of abundance. They feel the, the relief of having more than enough. And then the next day or even the next hour, they go look at their, their credit card bill or something. How would you recommend people approach manifesting money? or creating abundance in their life 
especially when they have these litmus tests that are continually yeah. testing them in the most stressful of ways. All right, so let me be very candid right now. I employed this technique um, back in 2019. Uh, within two years, I had about $1.7 million, which is as crazy to me as it is to anyone listening who has not experienced that level of wealth. Um, and it, you learn a lot of things there and you can do a lot of stuff and it does buy that, that flexibility and freedom that a lot of people look for. I now recognize that the reason I made that much money was to precisely show me that that ain't it. That's really not what it's about. It is not about having that much money because it can very quickly lead to the feeling of wanting more needing to ascend to higher and higher degrees of wealth, which is fine. You can be completely happy and awesome with any amount of money, right? It doesn't have to be. And I think I will likely experience that type of wealth again. But since then, now, technically, if I look at all of my things, I'm in six, six figures of debt. You know, I don't have enough income and revenue to support my monthly uh, expenses. I have three children, so it's not just me worrying about, you know. So I have all of the reasons in the world to freak out. And I absolutely have spent plenty of time freaking out about those situations. But I have also experienced what has happened when I've been in similar situations and I really employed these techniques and allowed myself to feel like I don't have debt and that I do have streams of revenue coming in. Um, and like, that's what it comes down to. Like, what what do you want to believe at that point? That this is it? This is the end? You fucked up? You're never going to make money again? Um, you know, it doesn't work like that. This is like, you know, here's your wake up call, buddy. Like, there are real things in the world that you can't get around. Do I want to really go down that road and kind of let that be what my life is? Or do I want to employ the techniques again and... Um, you know, see that they work and keep having these miraculous saved by grace situations that are inexplicable and other people react to them like, oh my God, I can't believe that happened, which is exactly what I did before and exactly what happened. And I find myself again in the same situation. I think money and abundance and resource um, stuff is so ingrained into the cultural aspects of the reality we find ourselves in that it's so easy to get kind of sucked into that. Um, I, I had a lot of people, um, relatively speaking, that was probably what was reacted to the most negatively over all of the stuff I spoke about because I know what it feels. That's what I'm trying to say. Like, I know what it feels like to feel like you don't have enough. I know what it feels like when it feels like this is a situation that will not be fixed and you got no real chance of getting out of it and you're going you know, to have to file for bankruptcy or you got to like figure it out or, you know, beg family or friends for money, all the, whatever it is. I don't. I don't come from a place of like just being built, born with a silver spoon in my mouth and always having enough and not having to worry it. So when people hear that you can kind of manifest or create abundance and resources in your life, um, if they haven't experienced that, it can be very jarring. It's the same way that like if you haven't, if you've been depressed for the majority of your life and someone's telling you, yeah, you can imagine yourself being really happy and fulfilled. They're like, fuck you. They're like, what are you talking about? That's not like you're an asshole. You don't understand what it feels like. I think for myself, I put myself through these situations. I'm kind of done with this, I think. I think I've been through enough. But uh, I put myself through these situations so I can understand that not everyone is going to be coming from a place of, you know, yeah, this is clicking. This is great. I got it all the time. Um, and I think that's important for someone 
who is talking about this stuff regularly because otherwise you're you're missing and you're probably missing people who probably need to hear it a lot like that it is important to know that when you're not doing well and your bank account and your credit card debt is rising and you know taking out loans whatever it is it's important to know that like you will be fine you will get out of it and you do have the innate ability to summon forth that experience that you need you should be able to hear that and appreciate that and at least go and test it out um because it, it, you will get those you're not not going to get those litmus tests the reason you're experiencing a state of lack is because that's what you believe is going on right now you go and you look at your credit card statement and that balance is going up like that's really that's real that's showing you see look that balance is going up you got this much debt but you don't. It's an idea that you have. Like all of these things are just like weird abstractions anyway. Money is uh, the biggest one. It's just what we agree, what value it has ultimately. That's why, you know, things like cryptocurrency are, you know, very, very powerful because they show that this stuff is just value creation. It's not really inherently worth what it is printed on or the, what it's supposedly backed by. Um, so I think more people will experience that um and you know I, I i hope people will and again you don't have to have the mansion you don't have to have the sports car if you want the mansion and the sports car and that's really what you desire and you can feel that in your heart go for it you're allowed to have that and those people hopefully who have those things have them and enjoy them but i found when i had the most money in my life i was closer to the bottom of my happiness and fulfillment level than at points where I pretty much was technically in debt, right? Like, I mean, I did, I had credit card debt. So that showed me a lot about kind of resources and what we perceive. And like, everyone is susceptible to that. It's, you may think of yourself as the most ascetic, enlightened person in the world. Oh, that stuff's so stupid. You know, why would anyone want sports cars or like massive fame or attention or, there's nothing wrong with those things. That's totally fine. Those things exist because someone was excited enough and interested enough to create those things in the world. Like a Lamborghini is a cool fucking thing. Do you need to have a Lamborghini? Is that going to really make you happy? Maybe. Probably not, but maybe. So it's worth going after those things. I don't want to be, I'm not someone who thinks like we should like, oh, like just live a very simple life and you know you know have a tree that you only eat from and you know like it, that's fine that's great that's cool do that too there's nothing wrong with that but ultimately like do what you feel like you want and you will learn those things i thought if i had close to two million dollars my life would be amazing how could it not be amazing how could it only but it wasn't i was doing so many things that really weren't aligned with you know, I lost my focus. I stopped doing the podcast. I stopped doing the Patreon. I stopped doing um, making music, you know, and my life pretty much became like, how do I protect and grow this money? And what do you think happens when you start thinking like that? It, it doesn't really last because it's not something you're supposed to be doing. So I say this only from personal experience, not from hypothetical, like I've heard from some rich guy that money isn't the answer. I was a rich, I was a very rich guy at one point. I still am that. Like I said, I, I do fundamentally believe, because one of my favorite things I did when I had that money is I was just throwing it at my friends, you know, $10,000 here, $5,000 here. What if someone, they didn't even ask for it. I'd just be like, do you want 10 grand? They'd be like, I guess so. I'm like, here's 10 grand. Like that was actually the funnest and most fulfilling part of the money thing for me. And I'm sure I will have lots of money again in the future through a variety of means, but are that are more aligned with 
what I want to be doing. I don't want to be sitting and doing crypto every day. And that's my life. And I realized that. And I didn't realize that before. So it was a blessing. Um, but yeah, you will be, I'm every day, if I want to dwell on what I don't have and my financial situation being not ideal, um, I have the opportunity to do that. So I get these very powerful kind of threshold guardian, guardians and litmus tests, and I can see how I react to it. And I have noticed certainly over the past month or two, I've gotten a lot better at not reacting to that and be like, you know what? It's maybe not solved right now. But then I don't feel, find myself saying things like, I don't have money. I'm in debt. I don't say those things anymore because I don't really believe it. I see that these things are there, but I don't really feel like that. And when you don't really feel like that, that's when things start to really turn around and you get to those other states where that's not true. You, you paid it all off. It wasn't a big deal. You remember when you had debt? You don't have it anymore. Those types of feelings start coming up naturally. Um, so, yeah. There's so much you said that I wanted to touch on. So one of the most interesting things you said was that at the peak of the wealth of the 1.7 million, you actually did not feel as happy as you did when you were maybe even broke or, or not in debt. financially secure no. or in debt. No, I didn't. I, it wasn't even close. There, It was like a scale out of 100. Let's say when I was in debt, I was like a 75 or an 80. I was probably at like a 25 with all of the money I had, like legitimately flying on private jets to places and Bahamas, my whole family. Like there were some very good experiences there, but overall, just not, not even close to the level of like fulfillment and joy. Why, why do you think that is? I mean, I know why it is now. I, I, I fundamentally lost focus with the things that truly excite me and are interesting to me in life. And I thought by building more and more wealth, that that would somehow give me more of an opportunity to experience those states, which my direct experience showed me wasn't true. But it's very, very easy to fall into the because there, listen, money does give you up to a certain point a degree of flexibility and freedom in your life. That's true. That's how this reality operates. I don't want to discount that. But you don't need money to have that freedom and flexibility is the truth. You probably what you love and enjoy and want is much simpler and easily attainable than vast amounts of wealth. Um, not that vast amounts of wealth are that hard to attain if that's what your focus is. For me, that's not what my focus is meant to be. I don't feel that that's what my drive is, right? I don't need to prove to myself or anyone else that, look, I made all this money. See, this stuff works like that. What is what does that even mean? If I'm happy, if I'm fulfilled, if I'm creatively expressing myself, um, those are things that I'm like, okay, see, here's I'm an example of, of what I, I'm saying is true because I actually feel like this. Money is just this abstraction that, you know, we attach value to and say, oh, well, this person is doing well because they have a lot of it and this person isn't doing well because they don't have a lot of it. That's just a story at the end of the day. The real winner and the truly wealthy are the people who are happy and fulfilled no matter what they have. That doesn't mean they can't aspire for more. Um, you know, like I said, I, I imagine I will have seven figures of wealth, you know, eight figures of wealth at some point, but not because that's important to me but because i think there are things that could be done with that that are cool and fun that are aligned with what i want to do and as long as i keep those things that i want to do as the primary focus the wealth is free to flow in and i'm totally cool with that i was just 
I had it flipped. I was like, oh, the money is the thing. Like, let me just keep doing this. I'll temporarily sacrifice what I was doing or what I feel like I should be doing to make more money so I can have more opportunity to do the thing. And it's it's a it's a, a logical thought circle. My wife showed me that very clearly. And it took me months to really fully untangle that and, and play. But I had like a circle of logic that made no sense. Oh, you're going to make more money so you have more time to do the things you want to do? No, that's not how it works. That's that's literally not how it works. It really doesn't work like that. Do the things you want to do, then you will have the opportunity to continue doing those things. Otherwise, you're forever perpetuating. When will it be enough? How much time do you need? How much money equals time? It doesn't. So that's why I think I was ultimately not happy and slowly moved into a depression that I didn't see coming because I just stopped doing everything that was making me happy. I wasn't exercising. I wasn't taking care of myself. I wasn't making music. I wasn't doing the podcast. I wasn't connecting with people. I wasn't doing readings for people. Like all the things that were energizing me and giving me money and reminding me that these are like important things in my life completely fell by the wayside. And I was just doing crypto pretty much every single day because I was doing well. I mean, it's hard to stop doing something when you're making, you know, 10, 20 grand a day. It's difficult to stop doing that because of the perceived value that that has. And to be clear, I bought a lot of really cool shit that I use to this day with that money. So not all of it was wasted. Um, and I, I want to make that key distinction that it's not like money is bad. It's not like some evil thing that you should shy away from and it's going to, you know, distort what you should be doing. A lot of stuff that I have to this day are it was bought with that money and I'm happy I did it and I'm happy I gave friends money. I don't regret any of that. It's just it became my primary focus and it became the end rather than a means to the end or a, a reason I should be doing something. And I think that's something that a lot of people uh, have encountered in their lives. And I was lucky enough to kind of get a pretty condensed version of that. It only took up, you know, a year to two years of my life to have to go through that lesson, which some people can go through many lifetimes. You know what I mean? Oh, a whole lifetime of, of not fully understanding that's not what it's about. I think also the key part of your story is the the feeling that got you there was then not you went from that feeling to trying to hold on to something or trying to grow something. So if you trace back your moods and feelings, can you recall what was the state that actually brought you that wealth and abundance to begin with? Knowing that I had it, knowing that it was inevitable, um, like everything else. It's like when you really know something and you really believe something, it is an inalterable fact of your life and it has no choice but to show up. And I knew it. I knew it. I knew I was going to have that much. I knew it. You actually knew you were going to have 1.7 million. No, 1.7. I mean, I, I was doing goals that were significantly higher than that. So I don't want to uh -huh. say that that's, but I knew what the feeling of like feeling like, holy shit, this is a lot. Like this is insane. And I knew what the feeling of people reacting to me when I showed them um, you know, what it was like, what that would be like. I knew the feeling of giving money to people. I knew the feeling of buying things that were important to me. Those things I knew and they did happen. Um, I think a lot of people, I call it like the lottery mindset. I offer to imagine things for, for free for people on my website. And every once in a while, someone will be like, I want to win the lottery. Can you imagine someone, me winning the lottery? And I say, yes, I do. But I kind of just recognize that a lot of the times 
what does it matter if you win the lottery? What do you want to do with the money that you buy a lottery? You want to buy a house? You want to get a car? You want imagine that stuff. Imagine the feelings of fulfillment that you have. You don't do you need to actually win the lottery? Do you need to have that money to get the feelings that you want? Probably not. Almost guaranteed you do not. If that's really your dream and that's the thing that would make you the most excited in the world, the actual fact of winning the lottery, not even the money that comes with it, just the fact of winning the lottery, then you're probably capable of winning the lottery. Otherwise, you're probably just not looking at it in an objective, clear way. Like if people are like, well, I want a lot of money so I can live in a nice house. Why don't you just imagine yourself living in a nice house? Does it matter if this house was just given to you by like a benefactor? Who gives a shit? If you have the house, you don't have a mortgage on it. You just like, why would it matter that you had to go and buy that house? You had to go and you're just putting an extra step in between, um, which is not really what you need to do. If it's important that that's the way you do it for some reason and you're aware of what that is, by all means, go for it. Imagine that is the feeling. But money is just an energy that allows you to experience things in this world. It's not like something that most people really care about. It's It really isn't. If I said you could have everything you wanted if you snapped your fingers, you didn't have to use money for any of it, or you could have a shitload of money and you could go and buy those things. Who's not choosing snapping your fingers? Snapping your fingers is a much more effective and better way of doing it. You need the money to do it. It's just like, it's like a stupid step in between, but people just don't see that because that is how we get things, typically. That is how things are acquired. So we've put this extra step in between, which doesn't necessarily need to be there. You know, I can relate to your story so much because I actually went through something very similar. I had a business, made a ton of money, and my focus turned to how do I hold on to this money? Yeah. How do I yeah. make sure I don't lose it? And of course, within a year, I ended up losing all of it. Of course. And it was traumatic because um there's grief involved when you lose oh, yeah. money like people don't realize like you know people think grief is something that's maybe like for the death of someone but there is a, a loss a sense of like i had this opportunity and i wasted it or i had this uh power or this flexibility as you called it and now i don't and something you mentioned was like losing touch with the things that actually make you feel alive i think that's such a key point because if I had gotten in touch with my heart in that moment before it all came crashing down, I probably could have saved myself that grief. Maybe. Maybe not, man. That's where you realize, like, sometimes you just got to go through the shit mm. to really get the lesson. And I think a lot of times we fight against that because it's not what we want. And we just feel like life should be this trajectory of like upward realizations and no troughs. That's not really what this place is. I think the trick is, is to appreciate the loss and the grief and these feelings that we would maybe put on the more negative side of experiences. Um, just because this is a world of death. This is a world of change and temporality. For sure, if we know anything, that is what this place is that we are experiencing right now. And there's a reason for that. And I think a lot of times we try to escape feelings or, or not have to go through situations that show us that because who would want to feel that? If you had the feeling, the choice in your uh, choice A or B, fulfillment or grief, people aren't gravitating towards grief. Yet 
we do experience grief, right? I mean, you there is a, a lack in sadness. And even if you recognize that this world is more like a dream than something we should be taking seriously, if someone you know who you care about dies, when your parents die, you know, or some, a friend dies, it's normal and a, a natural thing to experience grief and sadness. You don't have to dwell in those states forever. You don't have to let it consume you. And depending on your conception and relationships, that can be a, a you know modifiable experience. But we do get lessons out of those as well. We do get very profound. So yeah, like if I think back, I could be like, you know what? If only I had done this differently. But I don't. I, I think one of the things I've realized. And it's why I've been able to do pretty well with crypto over the years. Um, and, you know, I I don't lament loss financially probably as much as other people. When, I, when I'm having a difficult financial period, I, I wish I had that money. Of course, I'm not an idiot. But I get over those things pretty quickly. Like I recognize easy come, easy go. But there is still, of course, grief associated with it. But to think that you maybe could have done something differently to prevent that or if only you had been aware that, you know, you didn't have to cling so tightly and it wouldn't have slipped through your fingers. Um, I don't really know that that's how things are are meant to be. As long as the realization there is that you could have done something differently. So if the situation comes up again, you'll be more prepared. That's what you needed to learn. And you probably wouldn't have learned that if you didn't go through that experience. How would you have learned it? You just naturally would have done it and been great at doing it from the beginning? Probably not, because that wasn't your natural tendency to begin with. So that's like why bad things happen. And I know that's like a tough pill to swallow for people because we think like once we get, once we're amazing manifestors, and I had to grapple with this shit. I'm out there as the imagination guy on the podcast. And then when I go through a period of time where I don't really desire this experience, what do I do? What do I say? Well, I had it wrong, guys. I guess you can't imagine everything. Do I believe that? No, I don't. So I have to say to myself, well, why did I go through this experience? For me, I recognize I had to get more familiar with kind of the shadow aspects of reality and myself that are useful. They're not there because they're bad. They're there because they show you lessons in a different way. And at least as providing a contrast for how we would like things to go, they're incredibly useful. Like you now know you know, if if and when you have money flowing to you in that degree and capacity, however it's coming, you don't have to hold it so tightly. You know, you can be much looser about it and recognize that, you know, I have a dream for where I'd like this to go. And as long as I'm honoring what I am truly excited about, then this is positive in my life and it doesn't have to go away. And the overcoming of that pattern is also very powerful for people because the issues that seem the biggest in our lives are the ones we tend to run through over and over again. And when you finally do get to the point where you overcome that, and we've all done this in various aspects of our life, we've had issues in our lives that we have overcome, and they are no longer issues in our lives. But if we do find we're playing things over and over again, um, you know, there's probably a reason we're doing it. And the overcoming of that is probably the main thing. And I know in my life, there have been so many cycles of, extreme abundance to extreme lack that like I've run this pattern enough to know like okay I think I get it like I think I get what this is going on and I think I've gotten enough that I don't have to run through this but if I do find myself running it again 
I'll be like, okay, I, I get it. Like, this is just that pattern. It's not something to freak out about. It's not like I have to believe now that I'm going to be perma poor and, you know, my family's going to be fucked because I can't provide for them. Is like a, you know what I mean? It's like, you don't have to go through it as so seriously, even if the pattern replays itself. But the overcoming of the pattern often is why we go through these situations over and over again. I love what you said that it, it prepares you in a sense, because if I attain that amount or a similar amount again, I'm, I'm so much more prepared to deal with that now totally. than back then. I just didn't know what I was doing. I, I didn't know how to handle that amount. And I guess, yeah, you're 100% right. I can, I can look at it as a huge positive because there may not have been any other way to really teach me, hey, this is how you deal with a great influx of, of wealth. Probably not. Probably not. It's just how it works, unfortunately, sometimes. And now I totally get it why people who win lotteries, why so many of them lose it so quickly because it's people don't realize like it's a lot to deal with and it really uh, kind of fucks up your mindset for a little bit unless you know, you know, what you were talking about and you understand to stay in touch with your heart. Yeah. And one thing, though, that I notice also is it can affect your confidence when you lose a huge sum of money. Totally. And so when I'm trying to use let's say imaginal techniques to find myself in a place of abundance again but my confidence is shot i find it hard to regain that confidence and i'm curious if you have any thoughts confidence yeah confidence has a direct relationship to how seriously you're taking things in life like that's really what confidence is dependent on more than anything else there are other factors of course but if you're taking things very seriously, if life ceases to be a game, if your reality ceases to be a game that you're playing, your confidence is likely to be affected because then you're not doing something you should have done. You're not impressing the right people. You're not as good as the next person. It, it's all this relational kind of stuff that comes up. And so it means you're probably just taking it too seriously. There's no reason to take money and abundance any more seriously than anything else in your life. We do it because we live in a culture that this is the way that things are measured right now. You know, how much money you have, your ability to travel places, your ability to buy things, your ability to stay in nice places. All these things are kind of how we measure whether someone is playing the game well. What you realize when you have a lot of money is like, you may get some temporary lifts, lift of feeling like you're a baller and like you're living the high life, but it's very short-lived. It is not as satisfying as you would imagine it to be, even if it's satisfying, even if it's very satisfying. It doesn't last as long as you think, and it can really fuck with your focus. Like, that's that's what happens is, like, it becomes about something else, whereas, like, a lot of people don't see it like this, but working a nine-to-five, having a job that you go to, can instill you with a sense of purpose and kind of confidence that you don't even recognize it is. And that could be enough for a lot of people. So if you're someone, there's nothing wrong with working a nine to five. There's nothing wrong with even working a job that maybe isn't the best, most interesting thing in the world to you. If it's fulfilling some aspect of your being that gives you a sense of purpose and fulfillment, it's doing what it's supposed to do. Remember, at any point, you don't have to do that thing. That's up to you. But your confidence levels will be affected by your feeling of whether you're succeeding or doing a good job. No one typically feels like when they lose a lot of money that they've done a good job. It's just like that's not 
how it's it's like when you lose a game that you're playing it's like oh i did so good like that's not so it makes sense that you would lose confidence if you lost something right and that's natural all i can say is from my personal experience having made a lot of money and lost money a lot of money more than a, a few times in my life um just don't dwell on the loss so much it's like it's fine you easy come easy go just as easily as it came in, even if it was a lot of hard work, it, it, it will come back that same way. It can, will come back in an easier fashion if you allow it to be that. But we perpetuate situations sometimes in one of two ways. One, or probably more than that, but at least two ways. One is you feel like you don't have it. Right? You feel like you don't have the thing. You, you just You don't have it. You want it, you don't have it. The other way is feeling like you will get the thing. And this is a tricky one because people think, well, oh, if I feel like I will get the thing, then clearly the thing should show up. No, will get the thing is different than having the thing. Having the thing, that's why in the imaginal act, you have the thing. It has already been fulfilled. That is a different feeling than I will get this. It's like the Yoda thing. There is no try, there's do. You don't try to do the thing, you do the thing. That's very important because oftentimes we'll be like, I'm getting this thing. I'm going to get these things. I'm going to employ these techniques. This will be coming. All you're doing is perpetuating the situation of not having the thing because if you will get it, you definitely don't have it. So get to the point where you feel like you do have it, even if there is not evidence of it there. Surely there will be evidence that begins to show you that something has shifted internally, that the thing you have is showing up. It may take a little bit for you to fully get that and understand that and appreciate it, but you you will notice subtle things at first and then overt things that kind of go and show you that that's true. So, yeah, I mean, that's a big distinction between like lack mentality is thinking that you will get the thing is very different than feeling like you have the thing. Mm -hmm. It's uh, it's what Neville calls loyalty to the unseen reality. So when you exactly feel Thanks. like you have it, uh, but it's not, but you don't see it in your reality to continue with that feeling. That's what he calls faith. Faith. Yeah, that's what he calls faith. He calls faith that, uh, and, and prayer is imagination plus faith, right? So it's using your ability to um, imagine things with the loyalty to that unseen imagined thing that is, that's what prayer is. That's what praying is. We think of like, oh, well, please let me have this. Like, please give me this, or please, you know, let this person be well. No, that's not it. That's the category of wanting or wishing or hoping something happens. That's completely ineffective. It does not work. Faith, loyalty to the unseen thing, plus imagining the unseen thing, that's prayer. That's how you pray. For you personally, are you imagining currently that you have plenty of money or plenty well, I, of... I know that I do. I've I've gotten to the point where I know that I do. And I would say this has been something that's been in the past couple of weeks where I've really felt like that. And since then, um, it's not like droves of money are flying into me. But what I have noticed is my motivation, my curiosity, my energy levels have all shot through the fucking roof. And all of a sudden again, I see opportunities. I see potentialities. I see ways of things coming up. Whereas before it just felt like a hopeless situation. Like, I don't know, I'm fucked. And so those things lead me to believe that like, yeah, it's, it's fine. It's going to be fine. It's going to work out. 
you know, even if I have to go through some other, you know, trials and tribulations in this realm, like it's all good. Like I, I know that it's good. And I can react now when I, I don't want to not open up the credit card statements. I don't want to not open up my bank accounts. Like that's a really easy one to see. Like when you're avoiding looking at like how much you don't have, you're probably so not believing it. But when you really are just like, you know what, let me pay my bills. Let me get my shit done. It's fine. Even if I, I, I don't. And also, you know, this is counterintuitive. Sometimes I feel silly when I'm doing it. I don't limit what I buy. I don't, I may become more prudent and aware that like, do I actually need this thing? Like, is this something I really want? Which is a good thing to do anyway. Even if you have the ability to buy everything you want, it's still good to be prudent. It's not a bad way of engaging with reality, but I don't say, oh, I don't have the money to buy this. I, I can't afford this, especially when it comes to food. I think it's really important. I know inflation is crazy right now, you know, everywhere in the world, um, probably better to live in Bali than the US in terms of food right now. But like, I don't go, well, I can't afford this because it's too expensive. You know, I, I can't buy this. And people will say, well, I only have this much money. I really can't buy it. No, that's not true. I guarantee you can borrow money. You can use credit cards. Even if it feels like a stupid thing to do and you shouldn't do it. Don't sacrifice things that you genuinely need in your life to do what you want. Because that just reinforces a lack state. Whereas if you just... Get the shit you really need to get to do the things you need to do. You will get the money for it. Don't freak out about it. And debt, I'll say this as someone who's been in debt various points in their life, it's, just, it's not real. It's yes, you have to pay it back. Yes, you should pay it back. It feels good to pay it back. But like it's not this crushing oppressive force that you imagine it to be. It just feels like that because that's how it's used that's how we relate to it. It's It can be a game, right? It's like you you can pay it back and feel good for paying it back. One thing I know is like, I actually like the feeling of paying bills. It makes me feel good. When I have enough, it feels better. When it feels like I don't have it, it's not that great. But I don't mind the feeling of paying a bill. I don't mind the feeling of paying back an obligation that I said I would pay back for. Only when I feel like I don't have enough does that become an issue. But um, So try to get yourself in the mindset where like you're not fighting and pushing against perceived debt know your debt will be cleared know you will have plenty you will be abundant truly do what you need to do to get to feel like that and then watch what happens hmm. i love that and coming back what you said about not taking things so seriously and treating life as a game and maybe the moment we stop looking at life as a game we take it seriously. That's where things start getting more stuck. The energy starts getting totally. more dense. Totally. Totally. We're meant to to have fun and like live in lightness and levity more often than not. You're not going to get that all the time. Life can be heavy. It can be serious. It can be sad. But more often than not, you're meant to like your true nature is free and flexible and joyous like ultimately i do think unconditional love is what supports the creation of everything that's our true state um and so that's what you're meant to be doing most of the time but i understand why we don't do that some of the time it's, it's totally acceptable too is there an affirmation or a scene that you could recommend for anyone who wants to generate more money in their life i mean just imagine the feeling of having what you need Right. If that is uh, a car or a house or, you know, a number on your screen, that's a bank account that it's a feeling that is supposed to be generated from that. I like to use for myself. 
my friends and my family. So being able to see their reactions to me doing well and having enough or, you know, those tend to be the things that work because those are experiences I, I would get if these things happen, if these things are happening. Um, and then the feeling that instills in me, I've experienced it before. So if you have a point in your life where you had it, go back to what did that feel like? And then just apply that into some future state and uh, that works. So it's going to look different for everyone. But whatever gets you to the point of that feeling is the scene you shouldn't run through a few of them. It's fine. There's no limit. So you have to nail it on the first time. Um, <laughs> There's no limit. I love that. Just focusing on the feeling and also what you mentioned, I think Neville calls it the eavesdropping technique. So you imagine you're hearing your friends or your family notice something about the new you. Totally. And... It's crazy how, in some ways, it's more effective than you just imagining yourself achieving something. It's more effective totally. to almost look at it through other people's eyes. Yeah, and the converse is true. You can imagine things for other people within your field of awareness, and that also works. You can pray for them mm. just as you can pray for yourself. And there's amazing um, power and functionality for doing that, right? I mean, like, there's who wouldn't want to make the world and environment and social circles and family circles they live in to be as harmonious as possible. So don't just limit this to yourself. Um, you can absolutely use it for the well-being. Imagine, you know, the person who's destitute right now doing well. That comes back to you, by the way. If a gift also isn't accepted by um, someone you're imagining something for, it comes back to you. It's reflected back to you. That also goes for judgments and condemnations too. So if you're noticing you're judging someone, oh, this person's an idiot or this person's stupid or this person's poor or this person's, that'll come back to you too if they don't accept it, right? If that person is just, that's not their vibe, it's not their frequency, that's going to come back to you. You ultimately only condemn and judge yourself. So just be aware that those little things that maybe don't seem so important uh, or you know, this person who is objectively a piece of shit Maybe not. Maybe that'll come back and bounce on you because that's not exactly what's going on there. They're just kind of this avatar of what a piece of shit is and they're not actually a piece of shit. They just <laughs> appear to be and that comes and bounces back on you. Yeah, I guess uh, I guess one way to call that is karma, right? It's like this yeah. constant flow of what you put out, you get back. Totally. One of the things I asked you before our podcast was what is your greatest accomplishment? And you wrote my three sons. And I thought that was so sweet. Yeah. yeah, that's, I mean, you realize when you have kids, hopefully that it's pretty miraculous. It'll teach you more about yourself, um, you know, than anything can. I mean, it's just, you don't, it's a very psychedelic experience to have children. Um, it's trippy. Can you, and, can you expand on that? How, how is it psychedelic? Well, in the same way that you just don't know what psychedelics are like before you do them, you cannot uh -huh. know what it's like having children and the feelings and depth of emotion that come from that without having children. It's maybe not like that for everyone, but for me, it certainly is. Um, you learn a lot about yourself. You learn a lot about your parents. You learn a lot about just the cycle of life. And you also get to see individuals grow up and like become people and like have moods and ways of being at a very early age before they're even grown-ups at all so you know it's it's a very big blessing in my life it's not always easy every parent knows that it's not like it's one of those things in life that really is a a huge highlight of how something can be both amazing and like 
horrible sometimes at this in in the same way and like it's good to see that that is a a a component of reality it's not that it's just amazing no any parent who says oh it's just amazing oh, everything about having kids is the best no it's not it's fucking hard sometimes it's fucking annoying sometimes it's limiting sometimes but overall i mean it's it's a very great experience and so being able to see that both of those things are kind of um embedded in each other it's like a very powerful kind of uh experience much like psychedelics where like it's not always a fun time it can be challenging but you do get so much out of it um that it just teaches you a lot plus my kids are like they're awesome like they're really cool kids so it's like very enjoyable to be around them and like help provide for them and like teach them things so um yeah, I mean, I would say that's that's easily the the best thing I've I've done in my life to date. Wow, beautifully put. And what do you think was the most surprising thing for you of becoming a dad? Um, I think surprising is. I mean, it's a good good question. I, I, I mean, everything like you just don't know how you're gonna feel with kids. You don't know how just quickly you will immediately develop an emotional attachment to like you don't do that in life like you, you don't meet someone and like immediately love that person with all of your heart right in that instant it's not a thing even if you love it for a sight like there is going to be a getting to know each other phase and an expansion but as soon as you have a kid you love that kid like you would do anything for that kid you know if anything happens to that kid it, it feels like a a part of you is being ripped out and so that's that's probably was the most surprising is how quickly that happens um you know and i i understand for some women there's postpartum and they don't develop that connection right away but for for me as a father each time a child has been born it's been immediate um and two of my children were born with you know uh slight medical complications at birth not something congenital or anything um and so like you very quickly realize like how much you love this kid and how you'll do anything for them because like you you're immediately thrust into the state like oh my god i hope this kid is okay and you know i love them so much and they're just born they're like you know a few hours old and you're like what the fuck is going on so it's very uh profound in terms of feeling that what do you think being a dad taught you about yourself um how much I am loyal and kind of feel a connection to my family. And it also taught me a lot about my parents, um, especially as a child of divorce. My parents got divorced when I was five. I got divorced when my oldest son was four, five, thereabouts, or a little younger. And I, I see how these things happen and I understand why people end up feeling things like guilt or shame. I don't really feel that so much. I I conscientiously left a marriage for reasons that I knew were altruistic and good. Maybe selfish on some level, but also was the right thing to do. So I don't question that and feel guilt about it. But on the same token... I'm not with my kids every day. I see my kids a ton. I see them, you know, a lot. Um, I live very close to them. But, you know, I I recognize that, like, my kids probably want to be with me more than they see me. So you learn about all of these kind of feelings and situations. Also, I have two 
I have two kids with one woman and another child with another, my current wife. When I travel with my family, you know, some of the times we're all together, but oftentimes we're not. So I have this this feeling, which I think is part of my like origin trauma wound is like abandonment, which is natural with kids of divorce. I constantly am thrust in this situation where I'm away from one of my children, you know, young children. And so like those are things that I think I need as experiences to kind of feel what that feels like and how to process that emotionally to be like a whole person. And so those are themes and elements that I don't think I would have thought about. I mean, I didn't think about before having kids um, that I deal with on a regular basis that I think are functional and helpful for me um, because it is very easy to become codependent when you're trauma is abandonment right you don't want people to leave you you they can't imagine them leaving it's horrible if a parent or a other a significant other leaves but i'm also someone who very much needs their alone time and personal space or i will fucking lose it and you know you can't have both those things at the same time you can't be with your family and be alone at the same time So I have to figure out what those boundaries and ways to be honor myself, but also being there for my family. And that's that's a dance that I'm still kind of figuring out. But I know that when I honor that as like a theme I'm working on, things tend to fall into place a little bit easier. Um, So, yeah, those have been some things I've learned. I find it really interesting how certain themes from our own childhood and upbringing repeat later on in life, almost as if to mirror back to us and teach us what really happened earlier on so like for you like your parents you said got divorced at when you were five Five, yeah and now it's like you see the same situation playing out but from an entirely different perspective do you think our lives are in any way predestined or that we choose certain lifelines to experience certain situations it's a bit of both i think there is certainly a destiny aspect of it but i think also we have the agency to affect what our lives are going to look like um i don't think that's necessarily predetermined i think a lot of the reasons we do experience those kind of uh themes from childhood is we believe a lot of stuff when we're kids when things hit us emotionally we believe those things when experiences hit us and those necessarily will play out because we really believe them um You know, the only time something doesn't happen is when you cease to believe it. And that requires actually some effort to stop believing something as much as it does to believe something. So um, I think we have the ability to shape our lives with an amazing degree of flexibility if we choose to take that. On the same token, could that just be a time? Like time isn't really what we think it is. It's not this linear progression it, it is always there's a nexus point of time where everything exists. We phase in and out and flicker in and out of like frames of reality, which we experience linear, linearly through space and time, which we say, OK, this is our life. But the future never really ab- arrives. We can paint on it and create things and we can say, oh, well, here it is. This thing I imagined it came. The past is just a vague notion or memory now is what we experience all of the time it really is all there is even when we're dreaming and sleeping there is this sense of awareness right so uh, yes this already happened this already existed this is already destined and written in a lot of ways but there's an infinite 
number of realities that have already existed and our consciousness tunes into those with our awareness or without it. So that's like how both things are true at the same time. So yes, this already happened. This has already been played out. This is a dead world anyway. Things will die. It are, of course, necessarily had to exist in order to die. So it's both, which is kind of a cop-out answer, but it's really what I've experienced and believed in life. Mm -hmm. When you say dead world, just for those who maybe have not read Neville's work, can you define that a little more for, for the listener? Yeah, it's a more world of mortality. Um, everything dies here, right? Look around. Nothing lives forever. There is no perma state of existence in this world. You will die. Everyone around you will die. The earth will die one day. Like everything will die. And that is what is happening. Things decay. They get old. It's just a part of this reality. We can't deny that. Um, it's not something to be feared. It's not something to freak out about. It's just a fact of life. That's the duality of life, death. Um, it's just change, ultimately. Um, it's very normal to be afraid of death. I don't want to sit here and say, oh, I have no fear of mortality and death and people in my life. I mean, that's you'll realize that with children. You don't want your kids to die. Like, there's, there's a natural tendency to avoid it. But nevertheless, it is what this world is. Like, you're going to die. Your doesn't mean your sense of self, your, sense, your awareness will cease to exist. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying this world is a world of death. That is where we find ourselves. It's a world of mortality. It's a shadow of a higher existence where maybe death doesn't work in the same way. Maybe there are permanent states of consciousness that are being, you can live in forever. Um, but here, it's temporary. It's not a perma state. Other than Neville's work, have there been any other teachers or principles that have really guided your life? Yeah, I am a huge fan of uh, Ramakrishna, Sri Ramakrishna. Um, I'm a huge fan of Chogyam Trungpa. Uh, I am a huge fan of Maharaji, who was Ramdas's guru, uh, Neem Karoli Baba. Who else? I mean, there's there's been a ton of thinkers and uh, just philosophers who have helped shape my reality Jung I'm a huge Jung fan I think what he did for Western psychoanalysis and just the conception of reality was incredible um, those are probably the main Joseph Campbell big fan of uh, you know his his mm -hmm. works into mythology um, Reina Maria Rilke also just like really profound stuff on the nature of solitude um, so many, but like those are probably the main ones that when I think about like who have shaped kind of my, helped shape my my view of the world and myself, those are the big ones. Joseph Campbell has been coming up a lot on my radar and I'm curious what lessons or insights did you pick up from him? Well, his, 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 his delving into the cross section and kind of like whole world of mythology across traditions cultures is very very valuable and useful his conception of what he calls the monomyth which is the you know this idea of journeying out of the comfort zone into the underworld finding some challenges ultimately treasure in the underworld coming back to reality and this cyclical monomyth that we run through as people is incredibly profound and insightful um, and he's just a really good like thinker and writer about these things. And 
don't know. He's kind of like a traditional guy. He's not a mystic in the traditional sense, but like he's very profound um, and has done a lot of like very cool stuff. You know, the hero with a thousand faces is one of his best works, I would say. Um, even some of the posthumous stuff that's been released on like divine femininity. He was just like a cool dude. Like he was pretty ahead of his time. He was, you know, really just doing very profound and cool work at a time where I think a lot of people weren't really looking at mythology in that way. And like our lives are myths. Like they are mythologies that we choose to believe in. So that framework is very useful for when, um, you know, investigating your own life and reality. Was it Joseph Campbell that said, follow your bliss? Yeah, that's Joseph Campbell. It, it's uh, such a meaningful quote because it ties into Neville so much as well. It's like, follow that feeling of bliss. It is, which is sometimes pejoratively looked at just because it seems like kind of like wide-eyed, navel-gazing hippie stuff. Like, you know, the, the natural response to something, if you're a devil's advocate or just kind of like a, a pessimistic person, is like, well, is the garbage man following his bliss like does he really want to be you know cleaning out garbage all the day and my response is i guarantee there are a ton of garbage men who love their jobs like the simplicity of it the ease of it apparently it's a pretty good paying job like it's probably not this hellish nightmare that you imagine and yeah maybe they are following their bliss and maybe that's not it maybe garbage man isn't their bliss but maybe what that allows them to do or provide for is there bliss? So like it's you don't have to look at these things like, you know, oh, well, everyone has to be this profound, mystical, incredible, famous celebrity type achievement person. No. I mean, I see this more and more now with like Spotify. I've been a musician almost my whole life. And, you know, I see people on Spotify who maybe don't have like a ton of monthly listeners, but it's like 30,000, 40,000, which is incredible. That didn't exist before in reality. You couldn't have 40,000 people a month listening to what you're doing because there weren't the means of access. You had to get signed to a record label. You had to have some cult following to do that. And now you can just do that. You know, someone can make a song, put it on TikTok. The sound is amazing. And then it gets memed into a popular thing like that dude uh, Oliver what's his name the the guy with the uh, Richmond song um you know it, it's it, that's amazing that's super cool so we have more opportunity than ever to actually follow what our bliss is and that doesn't mean it has to be our career it doesn't mean it have to be the thing that even we're spending the majority of our time doing and i think that's where some people kind of get lost in the idea that like well if everyone could follow their bliss who would do this? Who would pick up the trash? Who would clean up the shit? Who it's like what I don't it would get done. Okay. Unless people really want to collectively live in a world of shit, someone's gonna pick it up. If my option was no one else is picking up the shit around me, or I have to live in shit, I'm gonna pick up the shit. It doesn't mean it's exactly what my bliss is, but it's more aligned with my idea of bliss than having shit all around me. So it's just like you don't have to take it to these crazy extremes when you hear someone say something like that because you know, maybe uh, bliss is a very simple thing for someone. Maybe it's just like the love of a partner, uh, you know, a dog and a fireplace. It doesn't have to be this crazy thing of like success, grand success or achievement. And I think that fucks a lot of people up. Um, and, you know, the cool thing is, is if you're really following your bliss, sometimes those really profound things can happen, which is great, too. There's nothing wrong with that either. So it is a powerful statement. I think it ties into what you said about staying in touch with your heart. 
you know it's like totally. when you were in the the high place of like having a lot of income but you lost touch with what mattered totally. to you and then you came back to hey music matters to me the podcast matters to me the patreon community and that is following your bliss totally i want to ask you a bit about the the podcast because for me it's such a such a special podcast i don't even remember how i first discovered it but it's one of those pods that as soon as a new episode comes out <laughs> i have no idea what it's going to be about but i know it's going to be good because it's coming <laughs> from an inspired place and i wonder how how did the podcast first originate for you uh it actually originated as a defensive maneuver because I was leaving a place I was working at where I felt like I was going to get nudged out. And if I didn't create something, then I would be like really cynical and pessimistic about that experience. So I was like, you know what, let me launch this just because like, I'm pretty sure I can do it. Like I, I've, I've had these types of conversations before. So I started it back, I think in 2015. Um, and it was originally just me interviewing. Every episode had a guest. Every episode had a guest. Uh, there was no solo cast. Um, so I was just interviewing people who I was interested in, cool people ranging from, you know, philosophers, spiritual thinkers, comedians, musicians, you know, yoga instructors, sound healers, like whatever you can imagine, just whatever I was interested in. Um, and then in about 2019, when I started kind of discovering Neville Goddard and just kind of my own personal ideology and philosophy I started doing these solo casts where I started talking about you know the stuff I was learning the stuff I was realizing how it was being applied in my own life experiences that I was having and that's when it really started to gain popularity and I think that was an example of me following my bliss um, and I will say you know at sometimes it's easier to do than other times but one of the reasons that I'm glad to hear that you always feel it's good is I really try to be intentional and mindful about when I'm recording that like I'm not just recording because I have a podcast. I'm not just recording because this is something I do and I need to do it because that's who I am. So that has led to times where I'll put out four or five episodes a week and it'll lead to times where I don't put out an episode for two and a half months. And, you know, that is more a reflection of where I'm at kind of energetically than anything else. And so those big gaps, probably I don't feel like I have something incredibly useful or important to share. And I try not to, I think I've done a good job of it, of not sharing the, at those times. I'm not trying to put out anything that isn't the vibe I like to have come out. And that's not to say it's always like a positive, optimistic, you can do it vibe. There have been many episodes over the years um, where I'm not doing great, but I'm very candid about that. And I think there's some use to that as well. Um, and that's kind of what it is for me. And, you know, I, I'd be lying if I said it's always um, feels like it's easy to get up and just talk for 30, 40 minutes, an hour alone. It's, I don't think that's an easy thing to do. That's why I think you don't get a ton of podcasts um, that are not topically centered that are like that because it is it's like giving a lecture every week it's like giving a you know a sermon in a lot of ways every week and I'm acutely aware of that and you can't fake that I mean I guess you can fake it if you have like a plan and talking points but I don't really have notes I don't have any pre-planned stuff usually to speak about I might jot something down during the week and kind of like go over that but for the most part it's just contempt uh you know, 
contemporaneous, extemporaneous thoughts. Um, and I just go and I speak and I usually I can tell if that felt good, I'll put it out. Very rarely do I record something and not put it out. So I, I kind of honor that space and being able to do it well. And uh, yeah, I mean, that's that's really what it is for me. And I imagine I will continue to do it as long as I feel inspired to do it. And I'm glad, I mean, I can see the numbers despite having taken significant time off are still pretty good. They're not bad. I somehow, which is, which has been shocking to me, especially with the patrons. Like I mean, there was a period where I don't think I posted on Patreon for like close to six months and I still had people. I mean, granted, I used to have a lot more people on the Patreon, but that's a direct reflection of what I was doing there. Now I take it a little bit more seriously because I recognize, um, like if someone signs up to the Patreon and, uh, is honoring me with, you know, seven bucks a month, whatever it is, I should take that seriously. That's a real commitment that they want an energetic exchange there. So I try to provide things at this point that I feel are worthy of that at the very least, that the value is being returned. Um, and that's been a big lesson for me that regardless of who's tuning in, whether it's 70 people or 7,000 people, that there's still a, you know, valuable energy exchange going on. And it's important to honor that. So you know, I've learned some things over the years related to, you know, uh, popularity and audience and stuff like that. And I don't take it for granted where I think at one point I kind of took it for granted because it was just like so flowy and easy. Again, that's a lesson I think I had to go through to kind of like fully understand that. And it would have been a shame if I would have increased in popularity not having learned that. So, you know, you, you learn these things because you're supposed to. What did you learn about audience building and building a tribe of people that is really connected to your work? Yeah, I don't I don't know exactly how to explain that one because it it's a bit of a mystery at times. Like I know a clear help was like I I went on my friend Duncan Trussell's podcast and that led to a lot of attention coming my way. But I think there's a resonant quality of what you can bring when you're speaking with people that kind of attracts them to you in a more meaningful or impactful way <clears throat> and as long as you're operating from that space i don't think it matters what it is you're really doing whether you're making tiktoks or on instagram or whatever like people will find you naturally i've been thinking about this more and more because like there's a lot of like fake numbers on social media and people look at these things and they say oh well this person has 30,000, 150,000 people, but do they really, or is are these real people, or was it one thing they clicked, they liked and followed, and then just never, like, so I don't place too much value on numbers, um, the quality of the engagements, the messages I get from people, those are all, um, you know, metrics that mean a lot more to me than, like, raw numbers, Um I'd rather have like a thousand true people who are fully engaged with what I'm doing than, you know, 10,000, 100,000 people who don't really give a shit. They were just attracted to some one little thing. Um, so it's hard to say. Um, I think the best thing you can do as any type of content creator, whatever your field is, is just be yourself, be as authentic as possible. Do it because you want to be doing it. Don't be doing it to gain a larger audience or a larger following. Those things will inevitably come um, if you're just being yourself and it's what you really want to be doing. If they don't come and you're being the shit out of yourself, 
maybe that's not what you really want to be doing. Think of it like that. It's that there. Maybe you're trying to fulfill some whole or aspect of your being with attention from other people, which is like not what it's about. Like this should be a mutual reciprocal exchange of energy, I feel like. And social media and the internet certainly offers that. But a lot of time it's just, it's not that, you know, it's like, it's just this attractive force of, you know, clickbaity or attention grabbing stuff, which is, I love that as much as the next person. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it, but it's what do you want these connections to actually be like for people to show up? Yeah. I think it's the authenticity in your work that really comes across. And like you said, those solo casts, I am always amazed how you can just go for an hour or even 30 minutes. And it seems so off the cuff. I don't know if there's any editing. It seems like there's no editing. No editing. No editing. And you're literally just you and the mic. And it's a free flow of thoughts. And yet there is value and energy and insights that are being delivered in such a free flowing way. And I'm, uh, how would you recommend for someone who wants to tap into that sort of channeling or that inspiration in their own podcast or their own YouTube? Yeah, I mean, in terms of like being able to do it, I I don't know how to describe exactly what skills you need to cultivate i think there is a natural inherent quality or talent you need to possess i don't know that you can like teach yourself to do that you could probably get better at some things but like i said i mean i don't always feel like that i mean when there's months in between i don't put in a podcast rest assured i didn't feel like i could do that so it's not like it's all the time um i think it has a lot to do with just how i'm feeling right? My, my energy levels, especially, um, my ability to operate from that frequency. Um, like I have to feel like that's there in order to do it. Once it's there, it is a very natural thing. I recognize it's not easy. Like I, I've, I've come, if even when it feels really easy, when I was pumping out like five a week, um, I'm still acutely aware that it's like unusual. I don't look out into the world of podcasting and really see many people doing that like even like live streaming for a lot of people they're they're doing something they're playing a game they're watching something they're interacting with their audience just off the cuff you know yakking for 30 minutes to an hour or more um you really have to be in touch with some part of yourself that is able to recognize what you're feeling and processing and then being able to effectively communicate that. Um, it probably has something to do with like Mercury being on my natal uh, midheaven. Like it's just like very clear in Leo, like a very clear placement for communication, you know, thinking quickly, processing quickly and being able to communicate quickly. So I do think there is some absolute validity to, to aspects of astrology that would explain some of those qualities. But I don't know. I don't know how I do it. A lot of the times I'll be like, how the fuck did I just do that? I thought I had nothing to speak about. I thought this was going to be 10 minutes long. And then I look down and it's like 30 minutes or something. And I'm like, shit, like, I don't know what that was, but I'm pretty sure it was good. I don't really tend to go back and listen to what I record either. So I just trust that what I said makes sense. And I, it's a feeling that I'm left with afterwards. Um, I wouldn't recommend this for anyone because you just 
it's it's there's no um real reliability that this is something you're going to be able to do at any given point and you have to be feeling a certain way and then be able to communicate that i mean oftentimes i really wish i had like another person or like some topical based stuff to kind of throw in there because you know a lot of the podcasts i listen to are primarily comedians podcasts like i'm a big fan of um uh matt and shane's secret podcast i love um uh Tim Dillon is a great one. And Tim Dillon, while he's doing it alone, it's all topical-based stuff. So it's not like I'm picking from the headlines over the past week and being like, oh, I'm going to talk about this. I'm going to talk about that. That's easier to do. That's like that's a regular talk show host, right? You you have your topical material, but like, you know, matters of the spirit and like, you know, manifestation, like also, you know. I don't want to say you can run out of stuff you can talk about, but I don't want to just repeat the same shit over and over again. So I at least try to come at this stuff from a different angle, even if it ultimately is about the same kind of stuff. Um, and I do try to be tuned in to just what I feel like collectively people are going through. And that means people who'd be listening to the podcast and just like the macro situations at large. Um, but yeah, there's no, there's no real advice I could give someone who wants to do that other than just trying to like practice see if it works i wasn't amazing at it when i first started doing a podcast you know it takes you a little bit to find your voice and being comfortable on a microphone but if you stick with it and you have that natural aptitude you'll, you'll probably be able to do it it kind of reminds me of i don't know if you've heard of neville goddess maggie murphy on youtube no no she does these sort of the same sort of channeling from inspiration basically where she sits in her car and it's just her and her phone and she talks about Neville and manifestation and that's you cool. can tell it's coming from the heart as well. I think that's the most important thing with your podcast is like you always feel like it's coming from your life and like it has meaning. It's not just, oh, I'm going to make a, an episode for the sake of it. No, I can't do that. Yeah, I can't do that. One thing I was wondering is what are you most grateful to have experienced in your life? I mean, I'm grateful for probably everything at this point i know that's again kind of a cop-out answer but just like i am very grateful to just be alive and Ugh. experiencing everything that i've experienced the good and the bad like it's an it's a real blessing to be alive like it really really is and i think when we forget that and kind of get out of resonance with that that's when things can get a little bit dark and scary and depressing but it is very incredible that we have this opportunity to experience space and time like this um, and you should try to remember and appreciate that as much as possible um, because it does, there's a direct correlation between your awareness of that and how your life will go or how you perceive it. Um, you know, if it feels like something you're fighting against and is against you, that's going to be what you get. If you feel like it's kind of a blessing and graceful, that's going to be, that's going to be what you get. I mean, I've, I'm very, very lucky in so many areas of my life in relationships in family in abundance and where i get to live and where i get to travel um you know all of those things stand out as like very uh, important things that i'm grateful for you remind me of wallace waddles who wrote the science of getting rich and he talks about gratitude as the connection to the divine it's like you're making communication with something greater totally totally what do you most value in your friends? Um, I think honesty and loyalty, I think, are the things that I've 
probably valued the most in my life. I mean, also people who are curious and like to have fun um, is very important um, and have kind of like a whimsical or offbeat view of reality. Those are the qualities that I tend to value more. But honesty is is probably the most important one because you can't really have a real friendship with someone if they're not honest with themselves and with you and everything. But been pretty lucky to have a lot of honest friends. What is the deepest spiritual lesson you learned this year? Um, it's all about negative, quote unquote, experiences. Um, all about shadow stuff. All about the hard times in life all about you know depression and just that these are not experiences we go through because we're doing something wrong it's not a failure it is not a um uh like you you fucked up somehow these are important powerful lessons that you give yourself to show contrast between what you love and what you want to experience and what you don't and you can't really reliably guard against those things. They will happen when they're supposed to happen. But you can do plenty of things to stay in resonance with like the best version of your life that is filled with joy and ecstasy and love and fulfillment. And I think we should all aspire to that. But don't view when that's not happening as like a bad thing or a negative thing because that's not what it's about um, at all. It's And that's the wrong thing to take away from it. And I think I despite having known that on a deep level, didn't fully understand that. So when I was faced with the situation of like things not being exactly how I wanted to be, I did start to be like, oh, this is a failure. You know, I did do something wrong. Uh, I, I don't know if I can get myself out of this. This is this is an insurmountable goal, which is not true. And it, it does, they're temporary states like any others. They can last longer than you'd like them to. But those have been the most profound um, realizations for me over the past year or two years. Was there a turning point for you where you went from I'm doing something wrong to hey, this is okay. This is an important yeah. moment in my life. It was just it took a period of time. It was about like six to eight months ago, I would say, where I really started to to put that together and then probably another three to four months before I could actually like work with that in some practical way. And then I would say the last three months, two months, um, I actually started implementing those things and um, now I find myself in a place where it feels like I have turned that corner and that there is this kind of upward momentum and I noticed that in my life but yeah it just took time um, it just takes time sometimes there's no other remedy that you can do I mean I, I could have tried to force myself to do those things I could have maybe implemented imaginal techniques earlier but if you're not ready to do that it's not going to make any sense that's why i don't take any time trying to convince people that this shit is true if you're not ready to hear it doesn't matter what the fuck i say it doesn't i can give you infinite number of success stories for myself and other people it won't mean shit to you you have to be ready to kind of go there and do the work and put in the effort um and if, if you don't, if you're not there, it doesn't matter. It's, you don't have to, it's not a matter of convinc convincing or conviction. It's just like you need to be at the space where you can hear that and really use it. And, it, you know, for me, it took some time, but it's, uh, I'm grateful for the experiences nonetheless. I love that. No, it's been such a beautiful conversation. I've learned so much about uh, money, about mm -hmm. the energy of confidence, and also not taking life too seriously and 
overcoming challenge and how to perceive challenge in the right way. So I'm really grateful to you for joining me in this podcast. Yeah, man, it's been fun. Thank you, man. Thanks so much. And uh, where can people find you if they want to vibe with you? Uh, Synchronicity is the podcast. The Patreon is patreon.com slash synchronicity and Instagram, TikTok, all those regular places. And what is one final piece of advice you want to leave the listeners with on how they can lead a more epic life? Epic? I mean, tap into what it is you want your life to be. What do you imagine? What do you see and feel when you wake up every day? What would you like to be doing? Those are the things that will get you in tune with uh, what it is you really want and what you would like in life. That's what epic is. It's doing what feels like what's right for you. That will naturally feel epic. Um, it doesn't mean you have to be going doing these grand, amazing, objectively amazing things in life, but tuning into what you want your life to be like. What do you want to wake up and experience? That could be anything from a relationship to a career to traveling to whatever it is. It does just, but you know what it is. And if you find that there are resistance points there within your own awareness, investigate those. Why is there resistance there? Is it reasonable? Is it illogical? Does it make sense? Maybe you don't want to do that thing. Just play around with what your real true beliefs and desires are and, you, and you'll come up with something pretty good. Thank you, man. Beautifully put. Thank you. Cool, dude. You've been listening to The James Zander Trip with Noah Lambert. Thank you, Noah, for coming on my podcast and sharing your wisdom, your presence, and your insights with us. If you enjoyed this episode, please do me a favor and share it with one friend who you think might resonate with this conversation. And for more deep conversations, subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, and YouTube. Visit jameszander.com for all the links. Thank you for listening, and have a beautiful day. You've been listening to the Manifest with Neville Goddard podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please follow the podcast on Spotify and Apple to receive future lectures. And visit nevildaily.com to join the free Neville Goddard newsletter. And if you have a moment, please rate the podcast. Before you go, I want to ask you a question. Are you ready to fundamentally transform your reality and upgrade your consciousness? If so, Join the in-depth, immersive audio course, Unlock God Mode, a guide to upgrade your consciousness to greater wealth, love, and success. This course is an in-depth exploration of your reality, a chance for you to get 30 mental upgrades, one lesson a day for 30 days that will shift your reality, upgrade your consciousness, dissolve limiting beliefs, and unlock the God Mode of your personal reality. Each lesson is 15 to 30 minutes long and will guide you day by day on how to implement and test your creative power. If you're someone who wants to see real-world results with manifestation and the power of the mind, this course is designed for you. For a limited time, you can get a special discount by using the promo code GRATITUDE. Head over to unlockgodmode.xyz or use the link in the show notes. I hope you join me in this unique experience. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you in the next episode.